Are you maximizing high demand season opportunities or are you letting them slip through the cracks? Learn all about it on today's show. You know, during the busy season, there's lots of opportunity and some of it is very easy to see. On the other hand, some of it is more difficult to see. Join me today as we welcome Mr. Russ Horrocks as he talks about high demand season opportunities and making sure you don't miss them. Hello, this is Russ Horrocks with EGIA Contractor University with the Seizing the Summer series. Today we're going to talk about the demand season. We typically in our industry kind of break opportunities down to the demand versus the non-demand season. Obviously the demand season is when the weather's helping us out. People are uncomfortable. It's on their mind. They've tried to use their system. Maybe it's not working quite right. So it tends to give us more opportunities. So how do we maximize these opportunities? I know it's tempting. <laughs> we just got through the non-demand season. We didn't have a lot of help. We're trying to market like crazy, trying to create opportunities, working with our technicians to turn leads over 10 years old, or if they're selling technicians to talk about equipment replacement. And now here we are, we have what appears to be a lot of opportunities. How do we handle that? How do we maximize our opportunities to make sure that we are maintaining the customer's experience, maintaining the company's core values, their mission statement, their market positioning? How do we make sure that we're not burning ourselves out as a company, as individuals, as a team? How do we make sure that the customer's experience isn't being compromised because we are so anxious to get to the next call? How do we get the absolute most from this time of year? In this video, we're going to talk about this pretty much from two perspectives. The first part of the video, I want to talk about more of the managerial side or the leadership side of this. What should managers and leaders be doing, owners, during the season to support their team, to support their personnel, to support the most important people, their biggest asset, and that's their human capital. What are you doing as managers and owners to make sure that you are helping to support those individuals out there in the heat working sometimes 12, 14, even 16 hours a day. From another perspective, what are we doing as productive-based personnel, whether you're a technician or a selling technician or a salesperson, what are you doing to maximize your opportunities? You're sitting, you were sitting around maybe a month ago or so wondering, you know, I wish we had more calls. When's the next one going to come in? And now here you have the opportunity to run pretty much as many as you'd like. How do you maintain a personal balance to get the most out of this time to make sure that you're not getting burned out, that you're not uh, running to the next call because you have so many? We've all experienced it before. When we have another call or many more calls to get on, we don't tend to put our best effort in. We kind of run into the first sign of resistance or it's not ideal or the, uh, the customer opportunity doesn't quite appear to be what we want it to be or it's not gonna work out the way we want, we tend to kind of mentally skip forward. We know we've got many more to get to and we're anxious to get to those. So how do you manage that? How do you kind of wrestle with your own mindset to make sure that each person is just as important as they ever have been? So that's what we're gonna focus on today from those two perspectives, from leadership and management, from production-based personnel, how can we take advantage of the opportunity that the weather gives us? So let's begin with more of a managerial perspective. What do owners and managers need to be doing during this critical time? Well, they have to support their personnel. What does that mean, support them? I think sometimes as managers and owners, we, we tend to think that, well, 
this is the time where they're making money too. They just need to shut up, buck up, and get it done. We tend to lack the sensitivity, the understanding that, yes, they do benefit from this busy season, but it doesn't mean they're not human. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve your full respect, your trust, even your empathy, your understanding, your consideration, and most importantly, your gratitude. I see a lot of owners and managers really struggle with this one. They think they're well compensated. They don't need my recognition. They don't need my gratitude. They're well compensated. And I'm telling you right now, that is not a good way to think. That's for sure going to make sure that your best producers may not be with you very long. Most salespeople I find, most technicians I find, they take great pride in what they do. And to, be, and to be recognized is very important to them. It means a lot to them. I've had many salespeople tell me after a, a half a million dollar month or a you know, significant milestone or a company record, they say to me the most important part of the whole thing was, and they go on to tell me about the recognition that they got. Somebody acknowledging their efforts, someone acknowledging what they accomplished. That's always the first thing they refer to. It kind of comes part and parcel with what makes a salesperson good. They are competitive by nature. You know, they have kind of a sense of challenge. They want to be challenged. They want to be fulfilled. They want to um, put it all on the line. It's a very high-risk, high-reward type position. They enjoy that. Almost every position in our industry now is performance-based pay. And that's good because it's in alignment of what's best for you, what's best for the customer, what's best for the company. As long as all those three things are in alignment, that's okay. We want you to benefit individually from that effort. So as managers and leaders, you can't just simply think, wow, they're getting compensated. They don't need anything else. That's just simply not how it works. You need to be very attentive to your personnel. Most importantly, because those personnel that you have are the ones giving the customer their experiences. Remember we talked about in videos past that your brand is the customer experience. That's the only way we can define it. Your brand, your company's name, and how people look at you and what they think about you has nothing to do with the products that you carry, the products that you install. That is not your brand. Your brand is the customer experience. And if you get too greedy, too uh, unfocused during the busy time of year, try to run your people too hard to get to too many places, what is happening to that customer experience? It's being compromised. That customer is not getting the experience that you should be known for. That thoroughness, that time, that investment of, of education, the time that we take to be different than everybody else in the marketplace. This is not the time to become just like them. How quick, how many, how fast, and how often. This is the time to really remain who you are and cement who you are in your marketplace. Now, it doesn't mean we can't be efficient and effective and carry a, a heavier load than normal. We should want to capitalize on this time of year, but we have to find a way to do it healthily. So I think one of the most important things for managers to consider and think about is, are my people giving my customers the experience that we want to be known for? If you always keep that as kind of the underlying ideal when scheduling and planning your, your, your production-based employees day, you should be okay. Don't ever compromise that customer experience just because you, can, you think you can make a little bit more. It's not a long-term uh, strategy that's going to pay off. It might pay off in the short term, but you're going to suffer in long term. You're going to suffer because of how people feel being looked at that way as far as your employees, 
not being appreciated, being worked too hard, run to death. Your customers aren't going to be very appreciative of that effort either. They're going to see you come in, go out, how quick, how fast. And everyone's going to lose in the long run. So be very aware of that customer experience as you go through the busy season. Next thing to be aware of, of course, is scheduling. You've got calls coming in. You're excited. This is awesome. <laughs> this is your dream come true. The weather's done its job. People are uncomfortable. The phones are ringing. People want you to come out. And you get excited. And you want to get to all of them. You really do. I don't think anyone thinks maliciously during this time of year. At least not the, the people that I have the privilege to work with. They're just excited. They just want to capitalize knowing that right around the corner could be a drought or a slow time or a very difficult time. And so don't lose that. That's wonderful. But let's try to manage it. Let's try to be careful. Let's try to get to those homes as we can. Now, a lot of good companies that I know, they manage the opportunities. What that means is they take a look at the opportunities that are on the schedule. Let's say you have a technician that's in a home is one of your customers. And while he's out there doing a routine maintenance, uh, he discovers that they have some major issue and the customer wants to consider a new system. Now, in this particular company, let's say that they flip leads. Well, what if all your salesmen are booked up for the next four or five days? You need to have systems in place. and You need to be able to look at your opportunities and make sure somebody's managing those opportunities. If there's someone in, that, in the queue that says, wants to add a supply you know, to an addition that they just built, you know, we want to get to them. We want to serve them. We want to be you know, their company. But you may want to consider putting that no cool tech lead in that spot and get to them a little bit sooner. It's just simple economics. Let's maximize our opportunities. Let's manage those opportunities. Have a system, a process, a way in which we do it. A lot of companies use kind of a, a grading system, if you will, an A, B, C, D. A being the hottest, most obvious uh, potential for success with a company relationship and a strong need. D being maybe a, a, company, a customer with no history, very little evident need. And that's a, that's a lead that you may want to push off a little bit if it comes to that. Push comes to shove. Let's manage those opportunities and let's get where we can be most effective the quickest. Now, I never want any customer to suffer from this. Make sure that you use proper professional etiquette when calling that customer to say, look, I hope it's okay with you. We had an emergency come up. We're not going to be able to get to your home today. And then walk them through the opportunities of when you can get there next. In addition to that, let your personnel know that they have one call and it's the call that they're on. Yes, they might have a busy day. Yes, they might have lots of calls to get to. But right now they have one call. If, you know, if they know that you support them in doing that, they're going to slow down and put the time into that call as necessary. They're going to give that customer the full brand, whatever your name of your company is, experience. The full benefit of information, the time to make the connection, the time to go ahead and, and talk to that customer in a meaningful way. Last week I was in Phoenix, Arizona. It was 110 degrees, I think, 114 up on a roof. And we were talking about with technicians how to be efficient, especially in the heat and the high demand. I was with one technician, the first call we had, it was a turned out to be a, a bad capacitor on a I think a 12-year-old system. Um, two and a half hours later, we walked out with an $11,000 replacement sale in a package unit on the roof. That was two and a half hours we invested in that home for the right reasons, to give them the full benefit of the experience they expect from that quality of company. Now, the next lead we ran was a very different scenario. 
a customer had working systems, wouldn't let us in the home, and basically said he's looking to the fall and trying to prepare himself. He said he wanted to involve his wife. She wasn't there. Every, everything he presented was evidence that there's nothing we could really do that day besides make a great impression, build a connection, prove intent, align with him, congratulated him for having the time and the opportunity to do it at his convenience and not be forced to do it when it's broken. We told him the, the fall is a great time to do the work. You know, we'd love to come back and, and if there's any money that we can save him, we're going to find that money for him. And that in the fall, you know, we would be looking to keep our greatest asset busy, our people, and that he's very fortunate to have the time to wait till then. Once it was evident what we had, we made pretty quick work of rescheduling that call and planning that follow-up and putting him in, in the queue, making sure that you, of course, have a good follow-up system. We were in and out of there in 25 minutes. So during this time, it's really important to think about supporting your people in the field to be in a home as long as necessary, because we know that the odds are some calls are going to be quicker than others. So just let them go in there, support them to do their job, do it right, spend the time necessary, and give that customer the full experience, the full benefit of information, the time and patience. I can't tell you how many times I've had customers say to me, thank you so much for the time that you took. It means a lot to them. This is their home. This is their sanctuary. This is where they're comfortable, where they raise their families. These are big decisions, and they really appreciate the time we take. If you show up and you're gone in 15 minutes, you say you'll, you'll email a quote because you got to get to seven more calls. While you think that busy work is making you successful, it's not. You're being extremely inefficient and you are blowing through leads so fast. You are leaving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on the table. I've taken salespeople from five to six leads a day in the busiest times of the year and brought them down to one, maybe two. And I've seen with training, with, 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 with coaching, with training, with hard work on their part, I've seen their, their production double and sometimes triple. And production, what I mean is revenue, connection ratio. <clears throat> we mentioned it's not closing ratio, it's connection ratio. Because they're now slowing down and investing the time they need to get the, the best possible outcome. As managers and leaders, make sure that you're giving back to your employees. Yes, they're compensated, but by giving back, what I mean is simple gestures of support, simple things that you can do. In the busiest, busiest of times, one of your personnel comes up and says, look, you know, my daughter has a dance recital or some other significant family event, you know, and on this day, I would really love to be there. You should jump at that opportunity to make sure that happens. What do you think is going to happen when you do? It's called the law of reciprocation. When you invest in your people and then you ask them to do things for you, what do you think is going to happen? They will step up and they will be willing, able, and they will give you everything that they've got. But if you just simply keep taking from them and demanding from them and kind of write it off as, well, they're getting paid, that is not how humans treat other humans. And that is not how you maximize the effort of those people that should be your greatest asset. Their talent, their pride, their craftsmanship, their traits, their character, the culture that they help you build, that will not work. You will see really significant drops in production, efficiency, and overall morale. So look for those times to give back to your employees. Obviously, it can't be something crazy. You know, I was always told, Russ, you can take vacation anytime you want. It just can't be from 
you know, late May to early September. I understood that. It was the, the life I chose, the job that I chose. But, you know, sometime in that summer, I definitely enjoyed trying to carve out a couple of three-day weekends. And that meant a lot. It allowed me to navigate through those times and stay healthy. So as managers and leaders, look at your personnel carefully and closely as individuals and look for chances to give things back. You've got to invest if you ever want to withdraw. You've got to deposit if you ever want to ask for more. It's not a one-way street. And you can't hide behind the fact that they're compensated and they're paid. It's one of the biggest mistakes I see owners make and managers. We're dealing with humans here. Your greatest asset is your human capital. Be more human, treat them like humans, and they will give you back more than you ever thought that they're capable of. One of the greatest human emotions is gratitude. It's one of the most powerful too. Take the time during this busy season to show the gratitude for your people and the work that they do and the time that they put in. Go out of your way looking for those opportunities. It means the world to them. Now, some people, it's more important than others, but it is important to everybody. When you see them, thank them for the effort. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them how they're doing. Find ways to recognize your people. No matter what it takes, find those ways. They'll reward you with effort. They'll reciprocate that with their best effort. They'll be willing to sacrifice knowing that you appreciate that sacrifice so much. And it means something to you. Therefore, they'll do it willingly. Simple concept, but one of the most powerful human emotions you can show another is your gratitude. Take the time to find these people during the busiest season and say thank you. Get out from behind your desk. Go find them in the field. Bring them a, a snack. Bring them some water, some beverage. Bring them something. When you see them in the hallway, stop them and, and find who's ever around. And say, hey, do you know what this guy did or this gal did last weekend? They put in you know, almost 24 hours on call this weekend and they turned 15 leads or they sold $150,000 or whatever the, whatever the accomplishment is, make sure that everyone's sharing that accomplishment. Make sure they're recognized. They'll be glad they did it and they'll want to do it again. It's a powerful concept, important concept. Do not miss that opportunity. One of the last things I'll say for managers and leaders when you're working through a time like this, trying to maximize it, is pay attention to your people and your personnel. They are all different and unique. Those of you out there that have more than one child, you know what I'm talking about. If you parent all your children the same way, you're going to get pretty disastrous results. Why? They're different people. They value things differently. They respond to things differently. They're motivated differently. They're capable of different things. So... A parent of four children myself, I realize how important it is to treat them as complete and total individuals. I remember one time years ago, one of my sons said to me, well, that's not fair. You don't make, my other daughter, you don't make her do that. And I said, you're exactly right. I don't. You're different people and I will never treat you like you're the same people. That wouldn't be right, would it? And my son kind of thought about it and said, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. I kind of just walked them through that concept and the idea. It's not about being fair. It's about being right. It's how can I best support my children to become the best that they can be? How can you best support your personnel to perform the best of which they're capable of? That requires a unique and different support for each one of them. As I've managed people for the last 30-something years, uh, I learned that lesson over and over and over again. How each person needs their own unique support system. 
one might value something that the other could completely care, care less about. It, it's, it's quite amazing, actually. Actually, I found myself being intrigued by this. You know, what would motivate one, the other person could care less. And so when you look at your personnel, look at them as individuals. Don't look at, at all your technicians as the same. Don't look at all your salespeople as the same. Don't look at all your installers as the same or your plumbers or your electricians or whatever industry you're in. Look at them as unique individuals. Now, there are standards we hold. I'm not talking about compromising standards or morals or company core values or, or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is knowing that, let's say one of your technicians or salespeople thrive under pressure and they love a heavy workload. In fact, it brings the most out of them. I know guys like this and gals just like this. They thrive under pressure and, they, and they, they're phenomenal. They lose nothing. They don't lose a step. The customers aren't cheated out of anything and they're wildly successful. And then I know other salespeople, technicians, they crush under pressure. Not crush it in a good way, I mean they collapse. They can't handle it. They're wired a certain way, they become overwhelmed and they shut down. So you need to be aware of your personnel and who is who and make sure that they're managed accordingly. I had one salesperson years ago that was a terrific salesperson. We had one particularly busy summer and he started to really tank. And his numbers were completely uncharacteristic of who he was and what he was capable of. So one day I drove out into the field, sat with him in a truck, talked for a while, and I realized he was just simply overwhelmed. And I said, I'll tell you what, from now on, until we decide differently, you and I together, you have one call to the call that you're on. When you're done, get out, give me a call, we'll debrief it, see how you feel, what's going on, and then we'll get you to your next call. And this is during the busiest time of the year, but I knew that's what he needed. And over the next about seven to ten days, he started to come back. I started to see the salesperson I always knew and his full capabilities were restored. And then we started to increase the workload as we could, paying attention not to throw him out of balance or compromise what he was able to do. So that's a really important part of what leaders and managers need to do during this time is manage your assets, your human capital, your personnel, these wonderful humans that are working so hard for you, manage them in a way they need to be managed, support them in a way they need to be supported. Recognize them, show gratitude, and, and I promise you, if you do that, they'll give you all that they've got. And they'll do it gladly, and they'll do it again. So those are some of the things to pay attention as managers and leaders. Let's talk about what to do as a production-based uh, employee. Technician, selling technicians, salespeople. How do you and how can you maximize this time of year? I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is to know yourself. Find balance in your effort. I've experienced burnout a few times throughout my career. I've got one of those mindsets that's give it to me. Whatever you got, I'll do it and I'll prove I can do it. In fact, I don't want to just outwork anybody. I want to outwork everybody. I want to outwork the whole team combined. That was kind of my mindset, but a few times it got me in trouble. I overpromised myself. In a given day, we all only have so much in emotional, mental, and physical potential. We have so much capacity. And if we're not careful and don't use that capacity wisely, we'll waste it. And during these busy times, we will not be efficient. We will not be as successful as we could have been. So know yourself, work with your manager to talk about how you're going to navigate through the busy time, how you're going to maximize, how you're going to slow down but yet speed up, how you're going to invest the time that each customer needs yet be efficient when it's required and called for, 
and, and, and work and communicate constantly to make sure that you stay balanced through this time. Now, of course, all of you have a personal life. That's important. Don't forget about it. You're going to sacrifice during the high demand seasons. You are. But don't eliminate that personal time, not, not just with your family, but for yourself. One of the things I used to do to try to um, keep myself balanced and knowing that uh, I lived kind of far away from where I worked, it wasn't, I couldn't just go home and hang out during the day. So if I had a seven o'clock meeting and a seven o'clock call at night, you know, I, I have a 12 to 15 hour day. I can't do that every day. No human can. So when I had a break in my day, I couldn't get home. I would find something to do. I would go to a matinee if I could. You know, of course, back then we had pagers. I'd always be alert and able, to, you know, willing to do something. But I'd find some way to give myself a little bit of a give back, a little bit of reward for the effort so that I could keep going, stay balanced, stay happy, and be as productive as I possibly could be. One of the things that my wife and I started doing early on in my career is we, every Friday, we met for lunch. Wherever I was, whatever it took, we found a way where she would come to me with, at the time, with a, was our oldest daughter, a little baby, and eventually two. Uh, we'd find each other somewhere every Friday afternoon, whenever we could, and we would have lunch. And that was a way that we kept that personal part of our, our life in balance and kept it supported and going so that I could invest in the work side. Why do we work so hard? I know Americans were accused of working too hard. But I think the reason that we work so hard, well, there's many reasons. You have to define that for yourself. I know for the, the people that I work with, my colleagues, and the people that I have the privilege of um, uh, learning from as well, um, the one thing I find consistent with all of them is their work ethic. Incredible work ethic. The, the incredible time they put in with passion. But why do they do it? I think for most of them, what they'll say is that incredible effort that they put in gives them freedom of time meaning they become successful enough where that they have time freedom and many of them financial freedom. And that's important to them. That time that they put in, that sacrifice they make, it pays off for them in having the freedom to do what they want when they want. But everyone has to find that balance. You've got to find that balance. So know yourself, communicate with your manager, uh, have a game plan, talk about how you're going to tackle the season, talk about your limits, be aware of your limits, no one to push, no one to pull back. If you do that, you're going to find that you can get through the time in one piece. Yes, you maximize the opportunity. Yes, you're going to make more money. The company's going to make more money. Those are all great things, but you have to stay healthy. You have to stay productive. You guys have probably all heard the old um, fable. I don't know the origin, forgive me, but I know the premise is simply um, two people were, were tasked to cut down a forest. One of them, and it was you know, kind of a race, one of them decided to just chop through the forest as fast as he could, never stopped, just chop, 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 chop. The other one would chop a ways and stop and sharpen his blade, and then get back up and continue, and stop and sharpen his blade, and get up and continue. Guess who won? Obviously the person that stopped and sharpened the blade. They won. The other person was trying to cut down trees with a dull axe, and pretty soon it wasn't working anymore. And I see this all the time in our industry. I see really good salespeople that are really talented and very successful. I see them not stop to take the time to balance their life out and to invest in themselves and to better themselves and be fulfilled and grow. 
and they start to become very victimized. They start to blame the leads, the source, the lead source, the company, the, the competitors. And it turns into this mindset cancer that I've seen many of them, it gets so bad they can't even function and they're out of the industry. And it's sad to see. It's, it's quite amazing. And I see it, you know, at least once a month somewhere in the companies I influence and work with, I see this happening to somebody. You've got to find that balance. If you want to maximize the summer months, you've got to be healthy. Take some time to stop and sharpen that blade. Find your moments to spend that quality time with your family. Find those private moments when you can do the things that you enjoy so you can reinvest back in what you do. Another great thing about this time of year, and it's very motivating for most of us, as we mentioned earlier, is we're performance-based pay. It's one of the coolest things about this industry and this work is that if you ever want to make more money, you invest in yourself. If you ever want a, a raise, give yourself a raise. Become better at what you do. There's a direct relationship with the time you invest in yourself and the way that you're compensated because it shows in your performance. Now, having said that, this is a great time of year, the busy time when the, when the sun's out inspiring people to make that phone call or, or demanding that people make that phone call. Yes, this is when you should, as an individual, want to capitalize and maximize your personal benefit. I know some guys that make so much during you know, the, the three or four months of the summer that you know, they, they can you know, comfortably navigate the rest of the year where they can put money in investments or college funds or, or do whatever they want to do with it. Be smart. So it's wonderful that you're personally motivated and incentivized to go out there. But here's what I find. A lot of guys have these expectations. If you've done this long enough, you know exactly what I'm saying. You might have an incredible June one year and a terrible June the next. You might have an amazing May one year and a terrible May the next. And I find that if the salesperson don't have the month they expected or hoped or wanted or the one they had last year, they completely collapse, they crumble. And they stay in that position way too long. They don't know how to pull themselves out of it. They're stuck. They're so frustrated and discouraged. They're thinking, look what I've lost. And that's a terrible place to get in. So the best thing you can do, I think, during these months is just go one call at a time. Forget about last year. Forget about everything else. Forget about the next call. Forget about the next day. Forget about the end of the month. Forget about the personal record for the weekend, for the month. Forget about all that. If you stay focused on the call that you're on with passion and process and execute to the best of your ability, that's when you'll put together record months. That's when you'll see that effort materialize into an amazing, amazing busy season. And you'll look back and you'll think, wow, look what I accomplished. But if you lose focus and you lose track of that, you can get lost in it. And you can have a really difficult time. So it's a simple concept, but really just go for one call at a time and give it everything you've got. Don't think about the next one. Don't think I've got four more today. I can kind of skip and shortcut this one. You've heard me mention before, all processes are basically the same. What separates us is how well we execute the process. It's kind of like golf clubs. They're all very similar. What separates us is the ability to hit the golf club. It's the golf shot that matters. So the process is, whether it's the meet and greet, the, the, the pleasantries, the exploratory discovery stage, you know, the get to work phase where we go ahead and we analyze the house, the system, the envelope, we report findings, we decide if we're going to reset or price the call. You know, we go through, you know, whatever process you have, they're all incredibly similar. 
The difference is, is your ability to execute it. Now, in this time, I know it's tempting to skip steps, to make assumptions, to assume that because a person doesn't have air conditioning, they want it done as quick as possible. And on that assumption, you execute your process. And at the end, they say, you know what? You've been great. We've got three more people coming over the next two weeks. Thanks for your time. And you're going, what just happened? They've got my price now and I have no more ability to influence them to create value and separation between me and my competitors. And in two weeks from now, when they get their last estimate, I'll be a distant memory. I'll just be a number on a piece of paper. What happened was you skipped some steps in your process. You made assumptions. You didn't verify anything. You had holes in your information gathering and you made decisions based on that. And those decisions came back to bite you. That's really typical during this time of year. I see a lot of salespeople make this mistake. Don't make the mistake. You've got to touch. The analogy I often use is you have to touch every base. Look at the processes, bases like in baseball. Now, there won't be just four bases. Let's say there's nine bases or whatever it may be. You can't go from first back to home or from first to second to home. You've got to touch all the bases to be able to score in baseball. In our world, in my world, You've got to touch every one of those bases, every objective, every part of the process in order for you to have the best opportunity for success. Even if you just run by the base and just barely touch it as you're running full speed, that's okay if that particular call doesn't need that. Still touch the base. Don't make assumptions. They will come back to bite you. I have countless phone calls of salespeople wanting to go over a call with me, and after a little bit of exploration, I discovered they skipped some bases. They skip some steps and I ask them why they go, well, I just assumed. So that's a real tempting thing to do uh, with production-based personnel when they're busy and have lots of leads is they tend to rush, they skip steps, and they're not going to maximize that effort and that opportunity and everyone's going to lose. That customer's going to lose. They're going to have to buy from somebody else who I assume is not as good as you. You lost your company lost. That new customer now is not a source of future revenue themselves or the people in their lives that they could possibly recommend. So don't skip that opportunity. Take your time, slow down, be efficient, run by the base if you have to and barely lightly skim it running full speed or sit on that base for as long as you need to, to ensure that the objective of that part of the process is accomplished. I can be in and out of a home in 20 minutes or four or five hours. It's entirely based on what's needed, what's required, and what's going to give me, you've heard me say it before, the BPO, the best possible outcome. That was the thing that I developed for me 20-something years ago. Because if I was defining success as selling something, I was living a terrible roller coaster. I sold, I didn't. I sold, I didn't. My emotions were up, they were down. And I couldn't stand that roller coaster. It was driving me crazy. So I developed that little concept, the little acronym BPO, best possible outcome, and I redefined my success not as what did I sell, but what did I do? How did I execute the process? Was that the best that I could possibly be? And what did I learn and prepare for the next one? And when I started learning how to do that, I started navigating the world of sales so much easier. I started finding myself in a better mental space more often, and it took a real lot to throw me out of that mental space. It took a real you know, disaster for me not to be at my best. It took practice. It took time. But it was important. I see a lot of salespeople make this simple mistake. We talk so much to our personnel about what to do in the home, but you need to spend some time on how to be in that position. 
I talk to salespeople all the time on how to be a salesman. Not what to do as a salesman, but how to be one. I talk to technicians all the time about not what to do as a technician simply, but how to be a technician. This is something you have to navigate. You have to know how to handle difficult calls. You have to handle defeat. You have to handle situations that aren't ideal. That is an important part of being productive. And when you increase your numbers because opportunities are there, you're going to increase the likelihood of having calls like that. So if you're not prepared for that, you're not going to maximize the summer months. Another thing to keep in mind is that while we try to maximize the opportunities during the summer months, you have to understand those summer months also feed the shoulder seasons. Or those winter months, if you're in that kind of climate, will feed the spring months, the shoulder season. What do I mean by that? Well, every person that you have success with is, the, is a potential future success. Their new uh, source of revenue, not just the, the reinvestment in your company, but their friends, family, neighbor, neighbors, and coworkers. And so every success is critical and, and matters so much in the scheme of a healthy business, in the scheme of your business. I know some salespeople that are incredibly good at referrals. They invest so much time in their customers, not just before the sale, but after they complete that selling cycle, that they have customers constantly, willingly telling them about their friends and family members. But it's important to understand what a lead looks like. Do you guys know anyone in your life right now that's looking to replace their HVAC system? I bet most of you said no. My answer is no to that. I do not know a single person in my life right now that wants to replace their HVAC system or even needs to. That's not what a lead looks like. If you're trying to set up future success with today's successes, you need to help your customer also recognize what a lead looks like. Nobody really knows people that have to replace their equipment. Yes, it does happen, but it's, it's pretty rare. What people do know, because they talk to their friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers, they know what they're experiencing in their life. Your coworker comes to work and says, you look tired, man. He says, I am. What happened? I was up all night. Why? It was so hot, I couldn't sleep upstairs. We only have one couch in the basement, and the whole family's fighting for it, so I had to sleep on the floor. I got no sleep. That's what a lead sounds like. Or, man, these allergies are killing me this time of year. They're awful. They're terrible. I, don't, I can't think of the last time allergies were so bad. And in my home, it's even worse. You'd think that in your home, you'd be protected, don't you? That's what a lead sounds like. I cannot stand these utility bills. Every month, they seem to get higher and higher. I'm always on my kids about turning the lights off and don't mess with the thermostat, but I can't seem to control those utility bills. It's frustrating. I got to get a second job just to play off the utility company. That's what a lead sounds like. So don't be so short-sighted that you rush through these calls in the busy season and go buy a potential success because you don't invest the time. Don't give that customer the full benefit of the, the experience that your, your company is committed to provide, and you're going to miss those future opportunities. So if you want to personally gain from that and you, you want your company to benefit from that, take the time, slow down, execute your process. I know it kind of sounds funny. Slow down, but speed up. And that's kind of what I mean. You've got to slow down, but you also have to speed up. Know when to slow down, know when you can actually speed up, but never compromise the experience of the process because it's not worth it. Another important concept to understand is time management. 
One thing I, I learned years and years ago was time management is a complete myth. I don't know about you, but I have never had a single work day in my entire life with enough time in it. Never had that day. As far as I know, that day doesn't exist. It's a unicorn. There's never enough time. So what's the point of managing time if there's not a, never enough of it? So for me, a long time ago, what I kind of realized was I can't manage my time, but what I can manage is my task or my effort. And that became what I started to do. I stopped trying to manage time. I stopped just managing my effort. So task management would be a better way to put it. What are you focused on? What do you need to do? So I often just would kind of base my, my day out of what, what do I have to do based on my position? No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's got to be done. It's my positional requirement. It's the most important thing I do. And those always took precedence. So I never would let myself compromise those things that have to be done. What are things that need to be done? Well, those are things that are important to your position, but they could go to the next day if they had to. They could be bumped for something that you had to do. Then what are those things that you want to do? Things that are important to your position, they don't really have to be done or even need to be done. The things you just want to do to make your position better, to your company better, uh, to be better at your craft. And those are important things, but they really can't ever bump the, the, the have-to-dos or the need-to-dos aside. A lot of people um, get really busy on the things they want to do, and they don't get the things done they have to and need to do, and they feel wildly unproductive. In many cases, they're let go because they're not fulfilling their duties. So, and what's their excuse? I'm overworked. There's never enough time in the day. I can't, I can't do that. There's never enough time. It's impossible. But what they don't realize is there's plenty of time to do the things they're supposed to be doing. They're just filling too much of the time with the things that they want to do. Whether it's easy for them, whether they're, whether they're scared to focus on the must-dos, I don't know. But they're, they're, they're scared and they blame time as the, as the reason why. Time's never the reason why. If you truly want to do something in your life, you will find the time. You and I both know that. For you to say there's not enough time is a complete lie. If you want to get it done... Don't tell yourself that lie. Get it done. If it's important enough to you, you will find the time 100% of the time. I know because I told myself that lie on many occasions throughout my life. Can't work out. Too busy. Can't eat right. Don't have the time. We've all said these lies to ourselves. Can't get enough sleep. I'm overworked. These are just lies we tell ourselves. It's how we reconcile our behavior, it's how we feel good about the things we do. When deep down inside, we know they're not, it's not the way we should be doing it. So during this, busy, <clears throat> during this busy time of the year, be very, very attentive to your time. Not so much to try to manage the time and try to steal more time, but what are you doing with the time that you have? Find ways to be efficient. If your company does not have complete paperless paperwork, you know, ask about that. Or if you're watching this and you want to provide that for your company, ask about it. Every company I know pretty much now is paperless. Why does that matter? If you're an hour away from the office and two hours away from home and you've got an hour between calls and you just sold a job, you do your paperwork in your car, in the shade, in your air conditioner. You send it off, you finish your paperwork, submit all your pictures, the agreement goes to the customer, goes to the home office, all of your uh, measure up paperwork gets done, the, the complete job scope gets laid out, the work order, whatever your, your process is, it goes back and now you go to your next call free of that burden to have to do later at night when you got home. If you come home late at night and you're burdened by too much paperwork and you're doing that all through the night, you're never going to see your family. So find ways to maximize your day. 
fill those moments with with very useful um, exercises, um, you know, parts of your position that are important, necessary, the follow-up phone calls you have to make, the reset of leads or whatever it may be. Um, you know, try to take advantage of those moments and be efficient. There's always ways to do it. If you lack um, the exposure to those different techniques, please reach out to EJA or, or anyone that you can as far as a territory manager or, or a territory rep, and, and we'd be happy to help you in some way if we can. Let me end by saying this. Hopefully uh, what I've said today has helped in some way, or at least got you thinking a little bit differently. Paying attention to those critical things that allow you to do something special, something unique. Achieve something that's rewarding for you, for your company. But most importantly, give that customer an amazing experience. Give them the time that they deserve. I think uh, in the past video you may have heard me say, um, I, I love a, a, a quote that was uh, shared with me years ago, and it was, the greatest gift you can give another is the purity of your attention. If you are a company out giving your customers the purity of your attention, and when you're in front of them, they know and feel there's no place you need to be or no place you'd rather be than they're serving and helping them and informing them, you are going to build a great reputation for your company. And people will reward that effort. They'll reward it by trusting you and investing in you and feeling good about your people and feeling good about your effort and feeling like that, you know what, you are more expensive, but you're different. So it's not really that you're more expensive, you're just different. Those differences matter to me. And I feel good about those differences and I'm going to invest in you. And that comes with time. You can't shortcut that process. That's an investment of time. I've seen it thousands of times throughout my career. You start a call and there's, a, there's an edge with the customer, a fear, an anxiety, a big wall. And the only thing that breaks it down is time. The time that you invest. I've had many successes in my career where I thought for the first hour, there's nothing that's going to happen from this, but I didn't care because my drive wasn't the outcome. It was the best possible outcome, and that required my best possible effort. So I just kept going forward, going through my process, doing what I'm trained to do, giving them the full benefit of being a professional. And guess what happened? A funny thing over time, people became comfortable. They felt safe. They started to listen, to hear, to believe. They started to see the difference, not just hear the difference. They got to experience the difference. And all of a sudden, you're an hour or two, two and a half, three hours, wherever you are, and all of a sudden, the buying signals start to pop up. And you start to see and get those questions, well, if you were to do it, how long would it take? How soon could you do it? You mentioned flexible payment programs. How do they work? And all of a sudden, you're walking out having had success in, in the revenue uh, definition of success and you think back how did that happen that to me is exciting that's fun and that's an investment of time so I know that you're busy I hope that you're busy it's a wonderful thing to have it's a wonderful problem to have but do not compromise the most important parts of what we do what you do and the reputation that your customer your company is trying to build in their marketplace and try to have fun don't get overwhelmed. Try to put a smile on your face. Have fun throughout your day. Find that time to balance, to laugh, to have fun, to cry even if you need to. Hope these things have helped. We'll see you next time. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, 
You can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
Let me ask you this. Do you have a plan this summer? Or are you just going to operate in total chaos because it's really busy? Figure out your summer plan on today's show. Now, before we get started today, I want everybody to know that we've launched our Service Tech Module 4 online course this month. If you're a member, you can get access to this course by going to Contractor Training, Online Classes, Service Technician, then click on Module 4. This module deals with the exact steps to run the perfect service call, so log in today and get started. Now, we all know it gets a little bit crazy during the summer, so I want you to check out this content from Gary Ellix as he talks about making sure that you have an operating plan to counteract all the chaos. Welcome back to Contractor University. And uh, what I want to talk about today is how to update that operating plan and use that operating plan as a tool. I want this to become cultural for the companies that are EGIA specific. I don't want it to be a set it and uh, you know we're going to put it on like a budget. We're going to sit it on the counter and we're not going to use it. Uh, the tool itself needs to become part of how you actually run the company. It's how you teach your managers to then run their portion of the company. Uh, so that that creates opportunity for you to empower people uh, to run a business model or to run an operational platform the way you want it to be run. And there can be accountability between you and the management team. Obviously, then we want accountability between the managers and probably the people that are in service or commercial or commercial maintenance or whatever business vertical you're in, solar, geo, et cetera. So, what the process is, is a discipline. It's all about you creating the format that works for you. I'm going to show you the format that we use, that we teach. Uh, it is effective. It does work for us. Uh, but I think you should customize it. I think you should match it to your company culture and style, your personal leadership style. But I do believe that you need a system that you can bring people along and create that empowerment and uh, ultimately create a legacy for the business that does not require you, the owner, or the primary leader of the company. So the trick is all about consistency. The discipline is maintaining the consistency. The consistency itself is meeting rhythm. What do you review? Uh, the metrics. What are you doing to push the goals forward? You've heard me say multiple times, we've adjusted our sales plans. We've we moved the second quarter goal downward. And uh, the, the good news for us is uh, we've, we've, we're going to beat both of the second quarter goals uh, that we adjusted downward. But, but yearly, we didn't change the yearly goal. We basically said, well, we're just we're going to have to produce better in our summer. So you got to seize the summer. So let's go over to the whiteboard. Let's talk about the company planning system. Let's talk about the tool. And then let's get you in position. This exists on the EGI website uh, as a blank template that you can follow along. And the action plans, of course, are driven by you. When you set a goal and you decide what specifically you want, uh, you've got to decide how to write that action plan. So I've got 34 action plans that I've written for you, but at the end of the day, I think you need to customize those and make those their own. We call those project plans. Let's go to the whiteboard. All right, we're back in the whiteboard learning lab, and what we've got going on here is a structure for how to create an operating plan. So again, this is not a business plan. We're going to the bank and saying, uh, give us the paycheck protection program. 
or give us a bank loan, a line of credit, uh, or the SBA, I need a business loan, so here's my financial statements, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is a structure for how to manage, uh, to create culture, to lead, and ultimately organize your management team so that they can drive performance and results. If you're a smaller company, this is how you become a bigger company. And if you're a bigger company and you're struggling with the discipline of accountability and growth in certain areas and uh, those types of structures, these are systems and tools that you can think about that you could deploy. Uh, obviously, they need to be clear and understood. So let's talk about it. First and foremost, if you look at the top, we need a vision of the company, where we're going. You know, paint me the landscape of where we're headed. So the purpose of the company is not the same as the vision. The vision is, hey, this is, this is what we're trying to create. The purpose is why. It's back to Simon Sinek. You know, start with why. Why are we doing this? Well, we're dedicated to contractor success. That's what we're about. So we're shooting video. We're working hard. We're teaching. We're coaching. We're answering questions, uh, trying to build tools that are useful, that help you. So because we're dedicated to that success, so the purpose is it gives us great pride when we hear from people and they go, you know, I did that and it worked and I appreciate the fact that you made that public or I tried this and it didn't work and here's why and then we learn as well. So the, the purpose is the why. Next, we have the core values and I think it's important you recognize that you need your behavior patterns defined. It's uh, me saying honesty, as we've talked about in previous videos, doesn't mean the same thing to person A as it does to person B. Likelihood is uh, their family, uh, where they grew up, uh, their belief systems. They bring their own belief systems, and those belief systems intersect somewhere with my belief systems. And neither one of those is right or wrong. So what you need is a company belief system. So we all buy in to the company belief system. If we say, this is how we're going to do it as a company, then we all have to walk the walk. Gary can't do something different, and an employee can't be doing something different. But it's not my belief system, and it's not the employee's belief system. It's a company belief system, and that's what the behaviors need to be. They need to be defined. So when you say integrity, you need to define what that means within your organization. Uh, when you say things like accountability, you need to define what that means. If you, if you say things like what we do, which is uh, you know, uh, operational uh, excellence is one of our core values. Well, what does that mean? So does that mean that you can put it in and it works, but it doesn't look good? Or does it mean that you're going to put it in and it works and it looks fantastic? You know, so and that's not right or wrong. That's something for you to decide what is the company belief system. And then you teach, train, process, drive towards those particular ideas. Next, what are the strategies? Company strategies, not the department, company. So I just put some examples out here. Commercial maintenance, drive commercial maintenance. Above all else, that's a strategy for us. We do not want spec work. Uh, we do not want really a high labor design work. We want commercial maintenance that creates commercial service and commercial replacement. It's a very small slice of the commercial segment. It's a, it's a very tiny pie for us, but it's a great pie because it looks a lot like residential in terms of cash flow, gross profit dollars per hour, gross profit dollar per man day, and how we price, how we manage uh, the supplier relationships. It doesn't change our world. That's a good strategy for us. Residential maintenance. Go get me 1,500 per million, at least 1,000 per million. 
get me tech selling model versus comfort advisor model. Or comfort advisor model, not tech selling model. Or like us, hybrid. Comfort advisors, techs. Strategy. So you go to South, uh, South Florida, pretty much a lot of it is tech selling. Um, go to uh, Southern California, a lot of it's tech selling. Go to other areas, it's heavy duty comfort advisor selling. There's no one right way to do that. It's a strategy. Choose your strategy. What verticals might you be in? So I want to get into plumbing. I want to get into electrical. I want to get into solar. Maybe I want to get into garage doors, overhead doors. So again, uh, choosing a vertical, picking a vertical is a strategy. Cross marketing. Being able to go to the painters, being able to go to somebody who's doing plumbing and I'm not, hey, I'll give you all my customers for your plumbing business if you give me all your plumbing customers for my HVAC business. Cross-marketing, trading you know, relationships. Another form of cross-marketing is you know, acquiring and buying the database and picking up the warranties of a new construction company. New construction uh, has been booming. So there's this opportunity again to follow around the companies that are pure play new construction companies that don't want the service department, don't want to deal with the warranty. You can get access to that and say, I'll take care of your warranty. You don't have to worry about it. Build a website, build a landing page, have that information come into your world. You collect the customer. And so the trade-off is they give you all the names and addresses of the people where they finish the houses. So these are just example strategies. None of them are right or wrong. They're not, I'm not having this discussion with it, within the video to promote them. I'm really just saying these are examples of things that we do strategically in order to try to attack and create a business plan. That brings us then to the overall company goals. I want a one-year set of goals that are right now. We adjusted our goals. I already said that. The three-year goals have not been adjusted. But if you adjust your goals, you have to understand that what comes underneath has to also adjust. So we are now going to take the one-year company goals. These are the company goals. So I have six company goals in the company. You know, what are we going to sell? What is the target profitability for EBITDA? You know, what, how many club agreements are we going to get? How many commercial agreements? Just go down the list. There's six basic core philosophy goals. Down here, we're going to break them down. So we're going to go financial goals, sales and marketing goals, production goals, and human resource goals. These are the four pillars of the business plan and operating your company with execution. So you've got to have an understanding of your costs departmentalization, market segmentation, an understanding of how to price, which both lives in finance and sales and marketing. Pricing is really a marketing philosophy as well as a costing philosophy here. Knowing your cost helps price. Knowing what the value in the market is is more of a market research. What am I, what's my value proposition? What can I charge for a bottle of water? Might only cost me three cents, but in the desert, after you've been there for three days, You'd give me a million dollars if that's all you had for that. That's, that's the marketing side. So we have to look at these individual four groups and ask the question, if your goals are going to change because of what happened, that's totally acceptable as long as you begin adjusting those goals down here. So one other small point that I would make, so if I have six goals inside of this one year, which is exactly what I have, some of those six goals will live in these areas here. So this represents, the blue circles now represent what the six company goals are. So 
it's not necessarily, well, there's six financial goals. That's not what we're talking about. These are the company's goals. Everybody in the company is responsible for those goals. The individual departments then have their own goals. So there are more goals in the company than six. There are six company goals, but the sales group might have 10 goals. My operations group, production operations, um, there's about 30 goals on their list right now for 2020. So clearly we don't have 30 company goals, but in the operations side, we had more work that needed to be done over here in order to get to our operational excellence core value. So we said, we got to get it done. Like we have to get that stuff done. So put it on the list. And so there's a lot of goals in this category right here for us. And so every year we're going to review that process. So this is an important component if you decide you want to adjust or change. Now let's take that down to, well, hey, Gary told me that we were going to learn how to use this. Like we built the plan, I got the plan, or maybe you didn't build the plan and now you're going to build a plan. Fantastic. How do I use it? Well, you have a weekly management review of all of your goals and the company goals. That is mandatory. That's the agenda. Where are we? Where are we relative to the work? You have a monthly meeting that's an autopsy on all of the goals. What did we say we were going to do? How many maintenance agreements were we going to sell? How many uh, transactions were we looking for? How many service calls? How many leads? What did the marketing plan promise me? Whatever the metrics are, you're doing a monthly autopsy on those conversations. It's the same agenda every week and every month, but of course the conversation about the agenda changes. And then quarterly, you're going to review the actual quarter. So January, February, March was a quarter. April, May, June is a quarter. I have my third quarter planning for Q3, right, which is July, August, and September. The second week of June, it's scheduled. So all my managers are going to get together, and we're going to go over this whole plan right here, and we're going to review this list for the third quarter. And we're going to argue about whether these goals need changed or whether they stay the same. We're going to do an autopsy on that. And there's 30 production goals. And people are going to say, well, you know, we did eight out of the 30. Great. Fantastic. Pat you on the back. What's going on with the remaining 22? And what do you need from us to get them done? So quarterly, monthly, weekly. So this is an agenda. This is a one-hour meeting. This is typically a two-hour meeting, and this is typically a one-day meeting. Remember, one hour a week, two hours on the monthly. It's, it's the weekly meeting, but it happens in the month, right? So the next month, boom, we're going to do this meeting, but it's going to be two hours. And then once a quarter, we're going to do a full-day meeting, and that is a full review of the entire business plan and the entire set of goals. And all of that gets distilled into this. Every employee, remember, is going to see the OPSB. That's the one page strategic plan. That's this stuff right here, this big stuff. And so their goal, their goal is to create their project action plan, their work that they're supposed to do which would be their goals and their action steps that relate to these big dogs. 
Everything that they're doing is about hitting the company goal. Now, I want you to think about that. That is tremendous alignment right there. This is, this is how you create focus. So when you talk about seizing the summer, I, I can't tell you how busy we are right now. We are so slammed that every manager is basically uh, jumping in, handling stuff. Uh, they're supporting call center calls. You know, if somebody comes, on, comes in sick or you know, happens to go down with COVID or you know, has a, a, a life challenge, uh, we're jumping in. Everybody is jumping in. We got need for more install crews. We've got more service calls than we know what to do with. Uh, the plumbing business is very, very busy right now. So it's all hands on deck. We're, we're in what we call red flag scenarios. Basically, let's just do what we have to do to get the work done. But we are in complete alignment with respect to this discussion. So a conversation came up the other day in this whole monthly uh, meeting. Well, what do we want to do about our promotions that we came up with? And the answer is, we're not going to do any promotions right now because we're slammed. So there's no need. But we did create a promotional calendar that said, well, what if the second quarter and the third quarter aren't very good, like the weather doesn't show up? We better think about having a promotional. So somebody asked that question, and the answer is, right now, things are they're good. The weather's good. We're busy. We're, we're selling our capacity. We're in overtime situation. Everybody is really working as hard as they can. No need. So the one-page strategic plan is the working document that is the company plan, and it ties back to these big company goals that are right here. But remember, the operations manager of the company uh, has 30 goals. Two of them are company-specific that are here, that they're responsible for, and they are accountable here. And then they've got another group of goals. You know, so if there are 30 on that list and two are company, he's got 28 other goals that he has to deal with. Inventory management is one of the stuff that we're working on. We got some stuff we just weren't happy with, and uh, we, we were pretty tight on our inventory management system, but there's a couple of areas that we need to get better at. So those are on his list. And so there's a project plan for that work to get done. And so we are reviewing each week what's going on. Each month, we're doing the autopsy on that. And then quarterly, we're doing the big picture items. And we're reviewing the whole plan. And we're asking the question, does all of this stuff still make sense every quarter? And so that's the process. Now, imagine the accountability if you knew this was happening. So the weakness, the weakness that occurs inside of the contracting business is we lack the discipline to actually schedule this meeting rhythm, and we lack the discipline to go forward and get the metrics, get what we would call the analytics. You know, it's as simple as getting departmentalized. Departmentalization is something that needs to happen, or a lot of this doesn't get pushed forward. So if you're struggling with that or you haven't done it, this is what we call a critical path chart. So if you know anything about critical path charts, it's basically that we can do lots of work simultaneously, but it all runs into a place where there's a dot. And that dot has to be solved, or we can't do any of the work back here. So all of this goes into that critical path. And then once we finish the critical path, we can start doing more concurrent work. So this is what we call a Gantt chart or a critical path chart. Departmentalization is that critical path point. If you don't departmentalize and segment your financial statement and break it down, 
you're not getting to the metrics. You're not getting to the KPIs by department. You're probably not going to be very good at performance-based pay when it comes to human resources. You're going to be, it's going to, you're going to struggle with the idea of being able to tell people what they did and what they didn't do. So critical path points are a discipline. So what I was discussing was the weakness is we lack the discipline to install this system. And so we go, okay, that's a great idea. I mean, I watch this video. I love those ideas. Like Gary makes it sound pretty simple. Well, okay, that's fine, but I've been spending you know, 35 years of my life in business basically doing that. So for me, it is relatively simple. But as a new company, when you're coaching somebody in a new company and you install it for the first time, they look at that and go, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there. And uh, I'm not sure that we're ready for that. The truth of the matter is, this is what you do as a startup. This is what you're supposed to do as a startup. You don't, you don't do it until you do this. And when you do this, then you can argue about where your resources go. You have limited resources, so do I. So you have to apply them smartly. So these blue areas right here would be, hey, when red flag procedures start happening in the world, what has to get done? And the blue areas answer that question. If you didn't do any of these things down here, but you did these two things down here during the red flag busy season, that would be OK. We would look at that and say, we understand that. Did we get to our company goals? And so this is a model. This is a very successful blueprint. It requires consistency. It requires discipline. And uh, it requires commitment uh, on your part. And it requires some level of training, in other words, understanding for your management team to be able to go forward and understand what's going on. So these are things that don't change an awful lot. The company goals obviously would change. And then each month, each quarter, these goals would might constantly adjust. Let's go back over to the studio. All right, back in studio. So we just talked about the idea of having a company operating plan, not a business plan, but an operating plan. And we use the operating plan for communication purposes, for meeting agenda purposes, for discussing what's happening in the business, to be able to review metrics, to be able to talk specifically with managers about empowering them to take the goals and drive the execution. So I want to put in inventory management. I want you know inventory in, inventory out on trucks to happen. OK, great. That's a goal. How do we do that? We break that down to a project plan. Lots of detailed steps. We review that in a weekly management meeting. We all comment on it. We go, great. Then every single week, there's a report on that. You're accountable. What did you do? What can, what can we do to help you? So what you're doing is you're creating an alignment and all of your departments in finance, sales and marketing, production, and human resources, those four areas, you're aligning those. And you're forcing everybody in the organization to pay attention to whatever the core company goals are. And those are the must-dos. Then the need-to-dos are the rest of the goals. And you're just reviewing that. And you're drilling on it. And it is boring. And when it's boring, you know you're doing it right, because the work will get done. And then you can celebrate the success. So I need you all to embrace the concept that it's not a size issue. Doesn't matter if you're a one-man shop, you're a startup, or you're a 50-man shop, or you're a 200-man shop. By the way, you can be successful without having any of this. Don't kid yourself. Plenty of companies have done that. However, you're not optimized. Optimization requires everybody else to be finishing the work the way the vision of the company requires it. 
We're talking about optimization. So I'm famous in my world for being known that I don't really care about uh, what everybody else's standard is. I care about what our excellent standard is. So if you're satisfied with something less than my excellence, then you, we're probably not going to be a culture fit. You're probably not going to work well in our organization. On the other hand, if you like the idea that there's a standard of excellence and there's training, support, and resources, and the plan itself is designed to support you, you're probably going to prosper in that organization. And that's how you build a peak performing culture. So this operating plan is about getting people aligned, getting people disciplined, having the commitment to review, creating the meeting rhythms, and making sure you're transparent with all your people about what's going on in the world. So as always, if you have questions, Send me a note through the Ask the Expert portal. We also have Contractor Connect on Facebook now, so that's very exciting. And uh, we're always, as we say, pleased and happy to serve you. We appreciate the fact that you're an EGIA Contractor University member, uh, member, and I will see you on the next video segment. Take care. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
don't get burned this summer. Sales is not a numbers game. Find out the details on what I mean on today's show. Now, before we get started today, I want to share a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't want to miss it in Las Vegas, Nevada, coming up very soon. Epic is epic. There's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up. You'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. Take something new back. Help and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers. That was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. Collaboration as we work together and trust one another. As I mentioned, Epic's going to take place in Las Vegas this year on October 28th and 29th. You can get signed up at epic2021event.com, epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an exciting event, tons of great content, tons of great speakers. So get signed up today because tickets, my friends, are limited. Now, on today's show, we got the legend, or is it the icon? I'm not sure I get him confused. I think it's the icon, Mr. Drew Cameron. He's going to be talking about sales is not just a numbers game. Right? It's easy to think that when it's the busy summer season, but it's not exactly what you think it is. Check out Mr. Drew Cameron as we continue our Seizing the Summer content. Hey everybody, Drew Cameron here for the EJIA Seizing the Summer Series. I'm going to talk to you about sales leadership for making the most of your blue ocean opportunities this summer. And I'm going to specifically talk to you uh, in this episode about sales not being a numbers game. Don't get burned this summer. So to do that, let's go over to the whiteboard. Now, what we're talking about here, sales not being a numbers game. Yes, we measure statistics. Yes, we measure the numbers. And that's important because, you know, the statistics and the data matter. But the statistics and the data are a product of what we do, the activities. But so sales is not really a numbers game, and people seem to think that it is. It's just, you know, you play out the numbers, it's the law of averages, so forth and so on, and that's not really true. So let's talk about specifically what do I mean by that. Well, revenues versus profits. Revenues are vanity and profits are sanity. 
you need to keep what you make. Now, top line revenue is important, and that's what sales drives. But sales has to drive the right mix of revenue, the right mix of business to get you the right results. And you got to make sure that your salespeople are on task, on price book, to get you the right margins. Otherwise, you could basically die by a thousand paper cuts, meaning the more you sell, the more you could end up hemorrhaging and bleeding out if you sell the wrong mix of business, if you sell the wrong price uh, mix of business. So revenues are important, but we got to drive profits because profits are where the sanity is. Revenues are vanity, meaning you know, the, if the only lever you have in your cockpit is to go faster, that, that, that's a problem. Sometimes you've got to adjust the flaps, you've got to adjust the wings, you've got to adjust your, your speed, you've got to adjust your, your altimeter, so forth and so on. And sales is the same way. So let's talk about some of the details that I'm focusing in on here. The problem is, is that most salespeople focus on winning, meaning they, if we measure sales and we're measuring results, we're measuring outcomes, the more sales, the more successful is the way most people look at this. The problem with that is, is focusing on that objective does not get you that result. In fact, quite frankly, today, more than ever, if you focus in on that intent, that objective of trying to sell more, you end up driving customers away. Customers want to do business with people who are looking out for their best interest, not for the company's best interest, or for the salesperson's best interest. They want to do business with somebody who's going to focus on their best interest. And so your intent has to match that. And if your intent is right, and then you can get better results. So we don't want to focus on winning. And so John Wooden was the UCLA basketball coach. He coached the UCLA Bruins for many, many years. And he was one of the most winningest coaches in any sport at any level at the time in which he coached. Think about that. The most winningest coach of any sport at any level. Let's look at the statistics. Okay? 10 NCAA titles. You're thinking March Madness. Unfortunately, we didn't get to have that this year, but he won 10 of them. And at one point, seven in a row. Never been matched, unheard of statistic. Won 38 straight tournament uh, wins. 88 game win streak over four seasons. Four undefeated seasons, 19 conference championships. In fact, an 81.3% winning percentage in his 40 seasons of coaching, 27 of which were at UCLA. So think about that, an 81% connection or closing ratio. If you could do that, what would that mean to your business? What would that mean to your customers? What would that mean to your company? What would that mean to your coworkers? What would that mean to your bank account? What would that mean to your life? What would that mean to your community? So 81.3% winning percentage over 40 seasons. Talk about consistency of execution. And that's the magic. John Wooden focused in on the consistency of execution. He never used the word win or winning in practice, in a pregame speech, or in a halftime speech. Never. In fact, he's well known for being a master leader. In fact, he was the mentor of today's leadership master or guru, John C. Maxwell. John Wooden was his mentor. And he didn't focus on the statistics, he focused on the execution, the activities. He, he realized that he couldn't ma uh, manage the emotional ups and downs of winning and losing basketball games. That that didn't lead to consistent execution from game to game, from play to play within the game. If everybody was focused on the scoreboard and not on the execution, the scoreboard didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. So he didn't worry about the scoreboard. He told his team not to worry about the scoreboard. He said, 
focus on every play, every possession, every defense, uh, every defensive possession as well. And if you focus on that, the results will be what they should be, when they should be. Meaning we will win, and therefore he did, and they did. Unmatched at any sport. In fact, if you think about it to this day, there are other people who have won, um, won more games than he has, but when you look at the statistics and the consistency, unmatched. So the numbers do tell a story, and the numbers are important, but they tell a story, and yes, KPIs, KPIs are important. Key performance indicators are important. We've got a lot of them all over the EJA site. The key to that, though, is, is that there are guidelines to those KPIs, and we've got to make sure that we're all keeping score the exact same way, because if we don't, then it doesn't matter what the key performance indicators are, but you've got to make sure that you're keeping score the same exact way, because the details matter, context matters, number one. Number two is the key performance indicators are also going to vary by market in some cases because maybe prices are different in certain markets because of the cost of living is different in certain markets. But when we talk about statistics as far as the KPIs of performance of the salespeople, that's where we get into the context and the details matter. So think about it this way. If I was to tell you that I played a round of golf and I shot a 72, is that a good score? You don't know. You really just don't know. Why? Because I didn't tell you that I played 18 or 9. I also didn't tell you what par is. But let's assume that par is 72. And I did play 18. Now is 72 a good score? Again, you don't know. Because what if I am you know, a minus 3 handicap? And therefore, I should have shot under par. So 72 maybe is not a great day out there. What if I told you I shot 72, but the rest of the field shot 65 or better? Again, now I'm not having a great day again. But if I told you I shot 72, the rest of the field shot 72, is that a good day? Again, you don't know. How many fairways in regulation did I hit? How many greens in regulation did I hit? You know, did I you know, uh, single putt, two putt, or three putt all the greens? You know, did I get stuck into any traps? And see, so statistics, while important, don't tell the story. And what we need to do is focus in on the story. What happens with most contractors is they get statistics, and they look at it, and they judge performance. And they're not judging the story that led this, the, to, you know, to the statistics. The statistics are the score, if you will, after the game has been played. So think about this. Roy Halladay, former pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies, unfortunately passed away uh, a few years back in a plane crash, but he had a perfect game when he pitched for the Phillies against the Marlins. They won uh, that game one to nothing when they played the Marlins in Miami. Which, so if you look at the byline of the, uh, or the box score of the game, the Marlins had zeros in every box. No runs, no hits, no errors, no bases on balls. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because how did he get to that result? How many pitches did he throw? He threw 115. How many cutters? How many fastballs? How many curveballs? How many sliders? And you don't know that. How did they play on offense? How many awesome plays were made on defense? That's what we need to look, you know, look at as leadership, as managers, as owners within the business. What's the story behind the statistics? So when you look at your P&L, for example, uh, on a monthly basis, and you look at the income statement and the balance sheet and so forth, those results are a result of the story. Don't just judge the bottom line. Don't just judge the top line. Don't just judge what happened in the middle. 
what's the story that happened? What are the attitudes and the actions and the behaviors and the activities and the results that got us the score? That's what we need to focus in on. So context and details matter when we look at statistics. Because again, these are just statistics. And by all measures, John Wooden was a fantastic ba basketball coach. But if you actually look deeper below the statistics, you understand why. Because he didn't coach winning. He coached execution. He coached excellence on every possession. And that's how they played the game. Because that's exactly what it comes down to. It's how you play the game that determines the, the uh, statistics that you get, the results that you get. So let's take a look at some statistics and some results. First off, let's look at the cost of a no. right? Because most salespeople can tell you about the sales that they won, but they forget about telling you about the ones that they lost. In fact, the ones they tell you that they lost, they, it's always the customer's fault. Well, in my experience, in the history of target shooting, if you miss the target, it's never the target's fault. Right? So not getting a piece of business is not the customer's fault. That comes down to the salesperson. So let's dive into some of those statistics. What is the cost of, the no, of a no? Because running more leads does not ultimately get you more sales. In fact, in my experience, when you start giving more leads to salespeople, closing ratios tend to go down. Average tickets tend to go down. And so we can't just fo start focusing on throwing more leads at salespeople because you're going to get more no's. And what's the cost of the no? It goes beyond the statistics. In some cases, if you go out there and start quoting jobs, and may, or running leads anyway, but maybe not getting the quote to the customer. Now the customer's had a bad experience. If you go out there and you're rushing through the opportunity and you don't educate the customer on how to buy and where value comes from, again, the customer gets a less than stellar experience. If you go out there and you're priced higher than the competition, albeit you should be priced differently than the competition, but if the customer thinks that you're offering the same value proposition or as far as scope of work as the competition, but you tend to be three to four or five thousand dollars more than the competition, the customer's going to walk away with a feeling that you're just trying to rip them off or you're high priced. And, and so again, gets a bad experience. And so that becomes the reputation of the company. So the cost of a no goes beyond the statistics because it can damage your company reputation. So running more leads is never the answer you know, to more business. Running more leads is never in the customer's best interest. And running more leads is never in the interest of the, custom, uh, of the company. Right? And it definitely isn't in the interest of the salespeople, no matter how much they tell you they want more leads. So we'll, let's dive through some of these statistics. Okay? Think about uh, leads. Right? If we, are, as average, on average, as a contractor, pay about $325 to $500 per lead to generate that through all our marketing costs, that's about what we see in the industry. It's $325 to about $500 per lead. And that's going to vary based on the area of the country and based on what you do in the way of marketing and your marketing cost. But I want to give, and this is a KPI for me, key performance indicator, 1.5 leads per day to a salesperson. So that means one some days, two other days. Now, if you get busy you know, this summer, then no more than three. They can't run that, uh, that many more than three and be as fresh and chipper as they need to be for a customer and be focused. Because there's windshield time. There's time on the call. There's windshield time between calls. They also have to do some phone call follow-up. They need to probably do some activities in the office, process some job files. Even albeit they may be electronic job files, they still have to do that, that, that work. But 1.5 leads per day, five days a week. I understand on occasion you may run a sixth and seventh day. That's okay too. But I'm going to play conservative. 1.5 leads times five days a week, 50 weeks a year. 
Okay, now you can adjust obviously for vacation and holidays, we, but we added for 50 week, allowed for 50 weeks. That's gonna give you 375 leads. I think that's a good book of business for a salesperson to run on an annual basis. In fact, that's what I managed in my company and that's what I do with all of my contractors that I work with. I try and keep them below 400 leads that the company will give to them. Now, if they self-generate some stuff or they get some referrals, or they're part of like a business networking group or something like that, then fine. They can add those in there because those are typically going to just close anyway. The closing ratios on self-generated leads and, and self-generated referrals, uh, as well as business networking opportunities you know, through uh, BNI or LATIP or the Rotary Club, uh, those closing ratios tend to be about 85, 95% anyway because of the relationship. So it's not that they have to, I don't want to say that it's not that they don't have to work as hard, but it is a little bit of a, an easier road to hoe on the sales process. But I'm going to apply a conservative 50% closing ratio here, which is going to result in 188 jobs, 188 sales, if you will. I'm going to put in a conservative average ticket of $8,500, okay, average purchase price. And I'm going to therefore allow for a 10% commission and a 20% net profit to the company. So when you play that out, what happens is, is the salesperson makes $850 you know, for each job on average, right? And at 188 jobs, ends up earning $159,000, almost $160,000 a year, right? For that business, for running those leads and getting those results. And the company makes $1,700 uh, profit, net profit, before taxes, or about 300, almost $320,000 a year in net profit from that book of business, if you will, okay? So, in essence, this is like almost 1.6 million for the salesperson in sales. That's, that's, a, that's a decent, healthy salesperson, right? And again, I, I was very conservative in my approach. And you can adjust for your area of the country, your salespeople, obviously, if you've been in business a little bit longer, I like to see guys doing, you know, two, 2.3, 2.5, 2.8 million. Again, on average, and, and being conservative there. Here's the interesting thing, though. That's what we get for the business that we sell. Well, what about the business that we didn't get? The leads that we didn't close, right? There's 50% that we didn't connect with. See, the problem is, is, again, salespeople remember the ones they got, not the ones that they didn't. And the company doesn't even focus on those either. So the way I look at it is, what if I were to basically say, okay, I have 1.6 million in business that resulted in these, uh, this income for the salesperson and this income uh, for the company. If I take the 1.6 million and I divide it by 375 opportunities, not 188 jobs, okay, now each opportunity is worth $4,261. Or to the salesperson, 426 bucks. And to the company, each opportunity is worth $852. Right? And so when I lose a job now, when I lose a sale, I've lost this kind of money. Right? Don't focus on just what you make when you make money, okay? Focus on what happens when you lose, too, right? I mean, if, if every job is 8500 on average, you might be saying, okay, well, then, then every lost sale is worth 8500 too, right? Okay, I, I, I agree with that argument, but if we go ahead and we just divide it by the number of leads that we run, everything that we do matters then. Every activity that we do matters. So job files matter, right? Phone calls matter. Uh, you know, running, uh, you know, working the home show, or working a, a mall expo, or if you're part of Lowe's or Home Depot or Costco and those types of leads, doing that, processing job files, going back and making sure customers are happy, delivering the thank you gift, 
meeting the, the crews out on the job. So you're now taking, you're paid for all of that activity. And so when I don't get a sale, guess what? I just made 426 bucks. Okay? When you don't get a sale, in your mind, you make nothing. You only make $850 when you make a sale. See, I like to basically say for every lead I run, whether I get it or not, this is what I'm making. So now every opportunity pays me. So don't just focus on the ones that you get. Also look at the ones that you don't get. Look at that other side of the statistic because there's 50% here that we get, but there's another 50% that we lost. So let's talk about maximizing connection ratio. You all call it conversion or closing ratio. I like to call it connection because the only way that people are going to buy from us is if we connect with them in their story. So we measure a connection ratio. And, but I want to play, play out a, a, a scenario that I encountered with a client several years ago right here in Colorado Springs. Uh, in fact, the company that Weldon Long worked for where I hired him, after Weldon left that company, we hired another gentleman to replace Weldon. And he did a great job for the company. But when I first met him, he was really focusing in on a one-call close every time. And so he called me one month, and he told me, hey, hey Drew, you know, you keep telling me I should do, be doing more two-call closes. And so this is back in the mid-2000s, uh, like about 2006 time frame. And he ran 42 leads. He sold 21 of them. And he told me, he says, Drew, I sold 17, 17 of the 21 on the first visit, and I sold four in follow-up. And now knowing this gentleman, I know he didn't even follow up you know, with these guys at all because he quoted them all on the first visit. In fact, he quoted all 42 on the first visit. He connected with 21, and 17 bought on that first, you know, first visit. Four of them called him and asked him to come back and do the paperwork, and, and obviously he earned their business. And so he said to me, he says, Drew, he says, you're telling me that I should run a lot fewer, uh, a lot more two-call closes and a lot fewer one-call closes. He says, but look at my statistics. I closed 80% of them on the first visit. 80% of them I closed on the first visit. And only 20% of them did I get on the second visit. And I said, well, that's fun with numbers. That's a, a new math, if you will. But if you really look at it, you're only telling me about the ones that you got. What about the 21 that you didn't get? In reality, what he failed to realize is he actually closed 40% on the first visit and 10% on the follow-up, which is that 50%. But 100% he, he quoted on the first visit. The problem is 21 he didn't get. Remember, he told me about the ones that he got, not the ones that he didn't. The 21 that he didn't get, he still quoted on the initial visit. The problem with that is, is he fell on deaf ears. Some of those people, I believe, would have bought from him had he quoted them when they were ready to buy. Not just when he had an opening on the board or he was out there and wanted to, to sell or he needed to make a commission. So I told him, I said, his name was Mark, and I said, Mark, you need to focus in on doing more two-call closes because here's what you're going to realize. Only about 10 to 20% of the people will make a decision, a buying decision on the initial visit. 10 to 20% of the people will make a buying decision on the initial visit. And maybe another 10% of the people who you go out to visit with aren't going to buy from you at all. So when you add those numbers together, that's 20 to 30% right there. So when we start you know, looking at the numbers, and we'll dive into some more numbers here uh, a little bit later, when we dive into the numbers a little bit, what you come to realize is that 60 to 70% of the time, you should be doing a two-call close. 60 to 70% of the time. Because 10% of the people aren't going to buy from you for no reason or any reason, and 10% aren't going to buy from you because of the way the company has positioned itself. 
We just don't know what 10% the 10 are the no-buys and 10% are going to buy because of the company. So when I add that to these numbers, right, we get up into that 30-40% range, and so the net is basically 60-70%. to 70%. And so what does that mean? 60-70% to 70 of the time, you should be doing a multi-contact uh, uh, closing opportunity with a customer or connection opportunity because you're going you're gonna to end up being irrelevant. You give all your information on the initial visit like Mark did, 21 of the people had forgotten about him. In fact, he didn't even follow up. Now, I know uh, our listeners are basically saying uh, yes to this question. Have you ever got a lead, have you ever got a sale because the customer said you're the only one who gave me the quote? You're the only one who called me back. So in reality, what they're telling you is nobody follows up. Everybody misses it on the back end. They go out and they give a quote, and then they may leave one message or two messages. They might send an email or a text nowadays, which is weak, but nobody's following up. You have to understand, life goes on for these customers. Life happens, right? Maybe they lose their job. Maybe a pandemic strikes. Maybe the car you know, breaks down. So, you know, somebody gets hurt at school. Somebody dies in their life. Guess what happens? They would talk to you, yes, and they had you out there today, but they weren't ready to buy today. And then the event happened in their life, and life got in the way of them making a buying decision. Yet you weren't there when they were ready to make the decision. You didn't follow up. So follow-up is the key. The best salespeople are those that follow up the best as well. But they also quote and are relevant at the right time. They're willing to go ahead and give the information at the right time to the customer. So you've got to focus in on getting a 60 to 70% two-call close. Because price points today have gotten so high, the customer's not going to probably make a buying decision on the initial visit. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get multiple quotes. In fact, the statistics say 77% of the people who said they were going to get multiple quotes ended up not getting multiple quotes. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about going out there and running a one or two call close because the cost of a no is high and you're missing out on opportunity that you could otherwise and should otherwise get if you remained relevant to the customer's process. So let's take a look at some other statistics. So considering some other statistics, let's take a deeper dive on connection ratio. You call it closing ratio or conversion. I call it connection ratio. But we want to maximize that. We want to maximize the potential of that connection ratio with customers. We know we're not going to connect with everybody, right? So let's take a look at the numbers. Statistically speaking, I find about 10% of the people aren't going to buy from you no matter what. For any reason or no reason at all, they just don't. Uh, and I call that the no-go, right? So for whatever reason, could be the color of your shirt or something like that, they're just not going to buy from you. And then 10% of the people also aren't going to buy it from you because of the company, the way the company positions itself, the markets it serves, the products it serves, the pricing, the messages that it puts out there. And so 10% of the people aren't going to connect or resonate with the company and therefore aren't going to you know, want to do business with you. And it has nothing to do with you as an individual. And never take this personally because it's not. It's all about business. So 10% no-go, 10% no because of the company. And then I believe you get 25% of the people that will buy from you because if you show up and you're professional and you're respectful and you're courteous and you show up on time and you provide timely and relevant information to them, their home, their problems and their needs and their wants and their wishes, I believe you'll get 25% of those people, no matter what. Just show up, be professional, respectful, courteous, do the right things, don't say the wrong things, don't be offensive, and make sure you give them the information that they need. And as I said to you uh, before, about 10 to 20% of those are going to buy on the first visit. Now, when you add that plus these two, two statistics, you're looking at somewhere between 30 to 40% of the people, again, are going to buy 
uh, make a buying decision on the first visit, which leaves that 60 to 70% of the people that I mentioned that you do a two-call close or multi-call uh, or multi-contact uh, visit with that customer. Now that leaves 55% of the market up for grabs, right? 55% of the opportunities that you go out, out on, right? Because we got 45 here, that leaves 55% that you still have to get, that you can earn. Now, I believe you can earn about another 25% of the people to buy from you by being valuable, being valuable to the customer. Benchmark your company to the standard of the industry. Don't make it a competitive thing. It's not an apples to apples comparison, you know, A company versus B company versus C company. How about it's us versus the standard? And set the standard real high that what you should do as a contractor. And if you're going to buy this from any contractor, here's what you want to make sure that you get. ACCA Manual J, Manual G, uh, Manual D, Manual S, Manual T. That they do an airflow analysis, that they do an indoor air quality analysis, that they do an energy calculation, so forth and so on. So benchmark it to a standard because most contractors don't even play to the standards. They don't even play to the, the, governing, uh, the governing bodies of the industry that mandate how we design systems. Most of them don't even do load calculations. In fact, I know statistically speaking, 80% of all contractors will not do a load on every house that they go to. That's part of the job. I get it, you might be able to, to, to guesstimate or you may have done a house right down the street or whatnot, but the average customer gets to do this 1.2 times in their lives. There's another statistic. But if they get to do this 1.2 times in their lives, you need to make sure that you educate them, teach them how to buy and where value comes from. And where value comes from is you, the contractor. In fact, 70% of the manufacturing process takes place in the home. It's not about the box. In fact, the best boxes could be rendered completely useless if the design is wrong. You, do, you size the, pro, uh, the equipment improperly, you don't match up the ductwork, you don't modify the ductwork to get the airflow uh, that the, the system needs, you're looking at some problems there. So again, benchmark to the standard. National Comfort Institute, Comfort Institute, uh, BPI, ACCA, AHRI, the Department of Energy and EPA and Energy Star. There are so many standards that you can point to that we as contractors have to match up to. And that way when a customer, if they do get multiple quotes, measures everybody up to the standard because you've taught them how to buy and where value comes from. That's how a customer gets what we like to call the best possible outcome. And that's what they want. That's what they hope for when they call a contractor is the best possible outcome. They want someone to be successful at helping them achieve what is in their mind the best possible outcome. For them, not for your company, not to fill the schedule, not for you to get a sale, not for you to make a buck, but that you're intentionally going to look out for them in their best interest. And you don't have to be 10 to 20% better than the competition. How about 1% better? And show the customer the differences that make the difference. If the customer is getting multiple quotes and you know who the competitors are that they're getting quotes from, well, don't go ahead and compare yourself, again, to the competition. Go ahead and make sure that they're comparing everybody to the standards, the third-party standard, because that's an independent agency, if you will, that we all have to kind of uh, subscribe to and measure up to. But talk about the differences that make the difference in their lives, and they're going to be the differences that make the difference in their health and their safety and the, the quality and standard of living that they have, because you want to exceed their expectations, the customer's expectations, that is, by achieving the best possible outcome, going above and beyond what anybody else would even dare to consider because most of your, your uh, competition out there anyway just wants to change out a box. So you want to make sure that you're offering to do other things that com the competitors won't, won't even consider, 
wouldn't even dare offer it. Bigger value proposition, but that goes beyond even sometimes the scope of work. What if you were to take down the holiday lights around the, uh, around the holidays for the customers? What if you were to offer to put them up? What if you were to offer to take away a bulk trash item like a, an old appliance that's in the backyard or the garage that they couldn't get rid of because they don't have a truck? Uh, what if you were to you know, clean up a problem that's in the basement that has nothing to do with the scope of work that you're doing? Um, what if you were to go ahead and uh, you know, uh, do something that improves the, you know, the quality and standard of living after the job is done, like maybe a whole house cleaning? Extend the warranties, add maintenance, ex expand the scope of work, if you will, as well. Those are some other things that you can also do to not only exceed the customer's expectations, but to also exceed your competition. And then lastly, add value to their lives. We call it emotional currency. Now, that's going to be specific to the customer. That's going to be specific to their story. What's going on in their lives? Not about the things that we do, but what is, what is that impact going to be? Maybe, maybe, for example, they don't, they don't sleep very well because it's not very comfortable in their master bedroom. Maybe their son, Billy, has allergies and asthma and ends up missing school, can't play sports. These are some things that you can tap into with what it is that you do as a contractor, but don't talk about the things that you do. Talk about the emotional currency. Talk about Billy and his allergies and asthma. Talk about how he's now going to have a, a, a safe haven or a sanctuary at home in which his immune system can cleanse itself. He doesn't take on all those toxins at home. And now maybe he can go out and play sports because he's been getting bombarded at school, outside, everywhere he goes, he's been getting bombarded. His immune system has been getting bombarded. Now he has an opportunity to cleanse his immune system at home and he can now go out and play and take on more out there in the environment. You're going to get a better night's sleep because Billy's getting a better night's sleep, but now you're also your room is comfortable and you're going to get a better night's sleep. You're also going to be able to enjoy that sunroom uh, off the back of the house because we're going to direct some more airflow back there. We're also going to optimize the return air coming back, and we're going to put in a temperature-sensing thermostat to give you complete automated control back there. That room that you've only been able to enjoy like six, seven months out of the year, you can now enjoy year-round. And tie it back into the story because that's what people buy. And they, and they spend emotional currency for those things more than they'll spend U.S. currency. And if somebody's willing to spend emotional currency, they'll definitely spend U.S. currency. So you're at basically 25% plus 25% because you've become more valuable to the customer. You've got a 50% closing ratio. But wait, there's more. You can get another 15% to buy from you by offering promotional incentives. So this is what you do with your marketing. This is where you actually do some direct mail, some newspaper, some radio, some television, and you make some offers. Maybe you even have some flyers that you hand out and you do some promotional incentives. So this could be trade-in allowances, uh, rebates, tax credits, uh, free items that you're going to include with the scope of, of what you do. Maybe a free air filter with the purchase of a new system, so forth and so on. So those are promotional incentives that you put out into the marketplace. Then you're also going to leverage payment options. And I believe if you're not financing 60% of your business, 60% or more of your business, you're losing business. That's why you don't have this piece of the, the business coming into you. If you, tell, if you tell me everybody in your business pays cash, that's right. Every customer that does business with you pays cash. Because there's a lot of people who would do business with you if they could see that you're affordable to do business with. Because once you're valuable, you also need to become affordable. And that's what leverage does. Financing is payment options. And credit cards are a form of financing. So that's included in that 60%. And we'll do a deeper dive on that here uh, shortly. And be compelling. 
Now we teach this in the sales classes at EGIA about being compelling, connecting your story with the customer's story. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to hear a story. The customers want to hear their story. They don't want to hear your story. And most contractors go through and they do a presentation. And they talk all about themselves. And, and even talk about themselves and how they're better than the competition. Well, that, of course that's exactly what you would say. But see, you're falling on deaf ears. In fact, what you find out nowadays, you don't even own your own brand. Your brand belongs to the consumer. And so you've got to be compelling and connect to the customer's emotional currency, find out what their story is, and be compelling in connecting your story to their story. Because when you are compelling, that's when people will spend money for things above and beyond what they would ever consider even reasonable. The funny thing is, is that when I ask people what Disney sells, everybody tells me that Disney sells magic, memories, uh, experience, happiness, dreams. In reality, Disney sells tickets and souvenirs and, and bad food. But everybody seems to think that they sell experiences and magic and memories and happiness and dreams. No, that's because they've done a masterful job at becoming compelling. And people will go down there. A family of four will spend uh, close to anywhere between six dollars and $10,000 for a week and come home and have absolutely nothing to show for it. Meaning, to get your airline tickets, to get your park tickets, to get your hotel, to get your rental car for the week, and to eat out and buy some souvenirs and so forth, you're going to spend for a family of four, not first class accommodations, you're going to spend between six dollars and $10,000 and you'll have nothing to show for it. Yet we can make their whole house healthy, safe, comfortable, energy efficient, uh, put a tourniquet on repair bills for a decade or more. And we can do it for in that, uh, in that, in that range, probably around ten, probably to 15000 20000 depending on the level of, uh, of equipment that they go with. And if we started to market and sell ourselves the way Disney does, we could do what Disney does. But we don't. We end up selling and focusing on things, and when, therefore we end up not selling our things, we end up owning our own things. If we want our customers to own th our things, we need to become more compelling. And so you've got to take what is now valuable and also make it affordable. And that's what the financing will do. And then lastly, you've got 10%. I believe you can get another 10% of the people out there to buy from you if you limit and track the leads. You heard me say a little bit earlier in this session, 1.5 leads per salesperson per day. So that's one some days, two other days, because you're going to do some go-backs, right? So if I give you two uh, leads today, and maybe I even give you a third because it's the heat of the summer season, and you have to do some go-backs, think about that. That's going to be about four or five appointments, plus windshield time, plus everything else that you have to do in your day. So when you start limiting, limiting and tracking the leads and holding your salespeople accountable to final resolution, meaning they have to schedule, you, obviously you scheduled the first visit, they have to schedule the second visit, and they have to log that in just like you track a, uh, a service call. They have to uh, report in and tell you how that went on the second visit. If they schedule a phone call follow-up, they have to report in and tell you about that. They have to debrief after every single contact that they make with a customer. And that includes email or voicemail or, or just reaching out to a customer and having a phone conversation. They need the system updated so that we know where we stand. Here's the interesting thing about contractors. They put GPS on the trucks. Well, your truck is a liability. It has no opportunity to make you any money. But you'll, you'll track it relentlessly. In fact, you even track your service calls. Now, the KPI for an average service ticket is about $350 minimal on a service call. We have the opportunity, as we saw a little bit earlier, $8,500 average ticket, if not even higher. 
and we're not putting GPS on sales leads, but we're tracking trucks and we're tracking service tickets, what about a, an opportunity that can generate thousands of dollars for you and also result, uh, result in some referrals for you? We need to put GPS on all of our leads and limit and track them by salesperson until the customer says yes, the customer says no, I'm not doing anything, or at least not right now, or I'm buying it from somebody else, or I'm just going to stick with what I got until it breaks. Well, then you can schedule that for a follow-up call in the future. But you need to hold the salespeople accountable to getting you a resolution, a resolution on every lead that you have. Because again, if we're driving towards the customer having the best possible outcome, because that's what our intent is. Our intent is not to sell. Our intent is to serve. And the way we serve is by giving customers good information uh, so they can make a good decision. I don't care what a customer does as long as they do it knowingly. I also just want to know uh, and get the professional respect and courtesy of getting a decision when they're done. If you don't want to do business with us, with us, that's fine. Just let me know. I'm okay with a no as long as you're okay saying so. I'll be happy if you make a decision that you're happy with. Just let me know. Because I, when I came out here, my goal was to make sure you got the best possible outcome. And the way I do that is giving you good, relevant, timely information and making sure that you have all the information you need right up until the moment you make a final decision. But I need to you know, get that final decision as a sales professional. And then lastly, 5%. I believe that contractors lose about 5% because of indifference of the salesperson or the judgment of the salesperson. And that's fine by me. You know, they go out, sometimes they just don't connect with everybody and I leave it to their discretion if sometimes they don't think an opportunity is going to be the best opportunity for the company, maybe it's a bad, dirty job that's going to just cause us a lot of problems, or they think the customer will cause us a lot of headache and heartache along the way. I'm going to trust the judgment of my salespeople to end up losing 5% of those opportunities. So if you really think about it, 5% plus 10% and 10% is 25% is what we have the opportunity to lose, but we have the opportunity to gain 75%. Now, that's of every opportunity that you run as a salesperson. I think that's pretty, pretty uh, successful, if you can get to that. Now, why would you say you wouldn't want to go higher? Well, I believe if you go higher, that means you're probably priced too low. Maybe you should raise your prices, get less work, make more per opportunity, make more profit per opportunity. And again, this is driving it at that 15 to 20 plus percent net profit. Net profit's what we're focusing on. So again, driving for 15 to 20% plus on the net profit, 75% closing ratio, these are the, the uh, statistics that I see are the connection potential around the United States. Now, you could go higher, certainly on, if you've got service customers or service agreement customers, you can certainly get 85, 90% of those, but you might only get 50% on the, uh, the internet leads or you know, 25 or 30% on yellow page leads or 50% on marketed leads, so forth and so on. But you can see on the whole book of business, it's about 75%. Now let's do a deeper dive because I did say I wanted to kind of take a moment and go back to that 60%. So let's go back and take a look at some statistics on what we can expect on driving financing through the business and see what we can get as far as driving revenue. So taking a look at the statistics for driving financing into your business, credit cards, financing, payment options, if you will, I like to call that leverage. So leverage increases the marketing and sales performance within your company. Now I believe you can increase your opportunities within your company by 25%. Meaning if you put that you offer financing and not just your percent financing but that you offer low payment long term options for customers to get the lowest payment possible, I believe that you can increase your marketed opportunities by 
I believe you can increase the closing ratio or the connection ratio by 15 to 25% by optimizing financing. And I said 15% on the board over there to be conservative, but I've seen it go as high as 25%. Because when you get really good at offering payment plans to customers, it shows customers how things can not only be valuable, but they can also be affordable. You can increase your average ticket by about 30% by including payment options for customers. Because when customers see that they can spend maybe $100 to $300 a month, think about that. Most of us have a cell phone bill that's probably more than $300 a month. And we own nothing for it. We don't even own the phone anymore. We have, we have to turn that in at the end of the plan, unless we buy it outright. But I can increase the average ticket for a consumer by offering bigger scopes of work, better level of product, um, you know, enhanced solutions, if you will. Maybe add on a, a generator or something like that if you do electrical. Maybe add on a water heater if you do plumbing. And expand that scope of work and take, everything, take care of everything all at one time. And increase that average ticket by 30%. I believe you can also increase complete system sales. So instead of selling just components like furnaces or air conditioners, do a complete system and increase those by 20%. And close up to 75%, as I said a few minutes ago, by offering these payment options. That's how you maximize the connection potential with customers, is by offering and leveraging uh, financing. And I believe, and I have seen around the country, again, conservatively speaking, that you can sell $2 million worth of business, $2 million plus dollars worth of business on financing alone. That's in addition to the cash and check option customers that you get too. Now, people, if you do a good job with this, about maybe 10 to 15% of the people will go ahead and pay by uh, cash or check. So if we really focus on driving 90% of the business that we do through financing, I see salespeople across the board, across the United States, selling more than $2 million. And again, that may vary by your market based on the cost of living uh, as to where you are. So let's take a look at some other results with financing. I believe you can shift the typical average ticket that we see around the United States, which is $5,000 for a component, and drive that towards those complete solutions that we said would go up to about $8,500 on average. Now that's adding no extra work. That is just changing out the equipment. But I believe you can convert the system at 8500 to a system with IAQ up around 10 grand or more. You can then go add in the system, the IAQ, and performance modifications. Fix the ductwork, seal it, right size the duct system, add a return, put the dampers in, replace the registers, so forth and so on. Takes you up to now 13,000 if you add in the IAQ and the performance mods there, you're at 15,000, and then you layer in IAQ system performance uh, mods on the ductwork, now the building envelope as well, and you're at 18 to 25,000. And again, adjust for your market. California and New York, cost of living is gonna be considerably higher. You're probably up in that 30, $35,000 range there. And again, that's not even layering in the potential for other things that you can do for this customer. But Shifting the book of business with financing is powerful stuff. So let's go ahead and take a look at two salespeople, one who's very effective with financing and one who's not so much effective with financing and see how the things play out. If I gave a salesperson 10 leads, both salespeople 10 leads, and one's very good at offering financing but the other one not so much, one person probably going to sell three out of 10 for an uh, average ticket of $8,500. And we're only going to improve that average ticket on, the, on this scenario, right? So we're going to go ahead from $8,500 to $10,200. We're going to get an increase or a lift by 20% on the average ticket. Closing no more business. So look at the, the two numbers that we've got. We go from $8,500 uh, 
without financing to $10,000, uh, $10,200 with financing. We then increased that book of business on three sales from $25,500 to $30,600. We increased the total income to the salesperson at a 10% commission rate of tw from $25,50, $2,550 to $3,060. And for the company at a 20% net profit, we go from $5,100 to $6,120. Now, if we leave the average ticket exactly the same and we increase the closing ratio, meaning we get more sales but we keep the average ticket the same, the numbers basically play as follows. So closing ratio goes from 30% to 50%. We now sell five jobs instead of three. Both average tickets are both at $8,500 uh, even. Salesperson A, basically who's not offering financing, generates $25,500 in revenue. Salesperson B ends up generating $42,500 in revenue. Salesperson A ends up at 10% commission, $25.50 in personal income, or $42.50 in personal income. And in uh, salesperson A scenario, the company ends up with $5,100 in, in company income, or $8,500 income by shifting uh, the closing ratio. Well, what happens if we put in both? What if we are able to increase the average ticket and increase the closing ratio? Salesperson A still sells three jobs, still sells at $8,500 average ticket, still sells $25,500, still earn, personally earns $25,50 on personal income, and the company still makes that same $5,100. But for running no more leads and costing no more marketing, but capitalizing on the opportunities that we get, making more with the business that we get, salesperson B sells, gets an average ticket of $10,200, 50% closing ratio, five jobs now, total book of business of $51,000, personal income to the salesperson of $5,100, and company income of $10,200. And so by just layering in financing alone, and that's why I said the KPI for having 60% of your business or more financed, and that includes those credit cards, is what's going to drive this book of business and you don't have to run any more leads. You don't have to consume any more time. You keep the crews busier. You get more of a backlog if you have it. You don't have to, to scrape and scramble for work because you're making more with the leads that you got. You don't need more leads. You need to do a better job with the leads that you have. Financing allows you to do that. So, as I started out saying, sales is not a numbers game. It's the activities and the behaviors and the things that we do that get those results. Those are the statistics of how we played the game. Focus on the execution of the game, and the results will be what they should be, when they should be. And you'll end up getting more business. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. But don't focus on the statistics. Keep the statistics, but focus on the behaviors and the activities that are going to drive the results that you want. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
Are you taking good care of your customers during the busy season, right? It's very important that we do. You're gonna learn more about this on today's show. Now, before we get started today, I wanna to share a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't wanna miss it in Las Vegas, Nevada, coming up very soon. Epic is epic, there's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up, you'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. We take something new back. Help and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers, that was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. Collaboration as we work together and trust one another. As I mentioned, Epic's going to take place in Las Vegas this year on October 28th and 29th. You can get signed up at epic2021event.com, epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an exciting event, tons of great content, tons of great speakers. So get signed up today because tickets, my friends, are limited. On today's show, we got some powerful content and our continuing Seizing the Summer content. This is from Mr. Scott Deming. He's going to be talking about seven steps to powerful customer service. You gotta make sure you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's with respect to your customer service during the busy summertime season. Hello and welcome to the EGIA Seizing the Summer video training series. I'm Scott Deming, an EGIA faculty member, and I'm very pleased to present my video, The Seven Steps to Summertime Customer Service. Although this video and this series is focused on helping you get through the summertime crunch with ideas and processes focused on right now, most everything on these videos, including this one, will help you long after summer has ended. I'd like to start this video the same way Vince Lombardi used to start his practices each and every year, by getting back to the basics. It was July 1961 and the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered for the first day of training camp. The previous season ended with a heartbreaking defeat to the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL championship game after squandering a fourth quarter lead.
The players had been thinking about that loss the entire offseason and were ready to get back to camp and apply new techniques and complicated schemes to elevate their game. Their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea. Lombardi knew his players would be eager to learn new techniques, plays, and processes, which they thought would elevate their game and increase their chances of winning that championship. But he had a different approach, one that served him well and earned him the moniker of legend. He gathered his players around, held up a football with one hand, pointed to it with the other, and said, gentlemen, this is a football. He took nothing for granted. He made it a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates carrying over no knowledge from the previous season, even though he was well aware that these were professional athletes who had been at this game since they were young boys. However, he knew the basics, the foundation should never be overlooked or underestimated. This approach to keeping things simple and focusing on the basics is what made Vince Lombardi a legendary winning coach. Vince Lombardi led the Green Bay Packers to five NFL championships, including Super Bowls I and II. The Packers never had a losing season under him. Although I'm trying to draw a parallel here, I am not assuming you are blank slates, carrying over no knowledge before watching this video. But I also don't want to assume you are familiar with every process and principle necessary for elevating your customer experience, no matter how basic it is. This video, The Seven Steps to Summertime Customer Service, focuses on seven basic processes that, if followed, will help you achieve amazing customer service this summer and all year long. Before we get into the content, I want you to try something. For the next several minutes, stop thinking like a contractor and start thinking like a homeowner. More than likely, you are a homeowner. At the end of the day, you go home, hug your family, pet the dog, eat dinner, watch the news, or your favorite program. You talk about your day, their day, what you're all going to do this weekend, etc. And just like every other homeowner, you and your loved ones are thinking about other things, not your cooling system. I realize it's difficult to take your contractor hat off and put your homeowner hat on. I get it. I also understand that being a contractor, you do think about your equipment more than the average person. With that said, you still must try to think like the homeowner, think like the customer. You'll have a much easier time understanding these concepts if you step away from your business and into the shoes and mindset of your customers, at least for the time being. So let's get at it. Several years ago, Delta Airlines hired me as their keynote speaker at their Global Leadership Summit in Atlanta. As I was sitting in the audience waiting for my time to go backstage and get mic'd up, I was watching the opening speaker, an executive from J.D. Power, the American-based data analytics and consumer intelligence company. This executive started by saying, your customers hate how long they have to wait. He was referring to how long a passenger waits to get on the plane, how long they wait to get off the plane, and especially how long they wait to get an update on why they're waiting. He said a customer will give you 15 minutes tops to give them an update or to improve their situation. If you can get back to them within 15 minutes, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Beyond that, now they're just angry. Studies and articles regarding frustrations and angry customers as a result of waiting too long abound. 
One customer wait time analysis has conclusively shown that people won't wait very long before leaving a store or a restaurant for good. In fact, customers are willing to wait only 14 minutes before being served. In another study, on average, retail consumers believe that 5 to 10 minutes is the maximum acceptable amount of time that they are prepared to wait in a line. And in yet another study from Valero, all it takes is waiting on hold for one minute and almost 60% of customers will hang up. We now live in an instantaneous society. Everything we want and need is at our fingertips. If we want information, we type it into our phone and we get an immediate answer. Want to watch a movie? Just go to Netflix and search the thousands of movie titles, find the one you want, and within seconds, you're now comfortably in front of your television watching the show of your choice. Post a picture or an article on social media and within minutes, people are responding and commenting. The almost immediate response and gratification we are now accustomed to has conditioned us to expect that level of responsiveness from every other experience as well, including your business. What can we do to mitigate the possibility of turning customers away due to long wait times? First, put a process in place that guarantees you can either get the answer to the person on the phone right then and there, or get them the answer within a few minutes. Don't tell them someone will get back to you without giving them a precise and guaranteed time. Next, you must condition your staff to be always and ever mindful of this issue. Let them know what happens when a customer waits too long. Drive home the importance of getting answers to a customer's questions and solutions to their problems quickly and accurately. Again, put a process in place that makes this possible. Then train your entire staff so that they are all on board and comfortable with the program. Finally, guarantee a wait time. This is key. If you can create a process that allows you to get back to a customer within five minutes, guarantee it and market it. If you can create a process that allows you to get to a homeowner within two hours of their emergency call, guarantee it and market it. Make that your differentiator. Now the times that I've just outlined are by no means the magic numbers. I'm only using those as an example. Listen to your customers. Find out from them what they believe is reasonable and what is not. Create a response time promise based on knowledge of what the customer finds acceptable and what you can realistically manage. The one thing all successful business owners have in common is they never use excuses. Nobody likes a whiner and nobody likes to hear excuses. Playing the blame game because you dropped the ball only puts you in a worse light than you already are. If you failed to live up to a promise or fell short of the customer's expectations, admit it and fix it. Explaining why you did not meet the expectations of your customers with excuses does not build trust and confidence with the customers. While there may be reasons behind your failure to meet their expectations, customers generally do not want to hear about your problems. What they want is for you to do what you have said you would do and do it when you said you would. If you can't, they expect you to make it right. If you're honest about your mistakes and shortcomings, usually the customer will give you a break. If it's a customer who already knows you and trusts you, they will allow a misstep from time to time, but only if it's from time to time. Think of it from the customer's perspective. Blaming bad customer service on your supplier or your employees communicates to your customers that you are less than competent. It is your business, so whatever goes on within it ultimately reflects on you. 
Even worse, telling a customer that the reason you could not deliver as promised is due to taking care of another customer communicates that their business is less important to you. The importance of taking full responsibility and acting with integrity with your customers is important and helps to strengthen the relationship. Here's a fact. The average homeowner isn't thinking about why they're comfortable. They don't look out at that condensing unit every day and say, gosh, I'm so glad that 14-seer unit is running properly and keeping my family nice and comfortable. They don't think about why they're comfortable or uncomfortable. They just know they are. They visit the thermostat and turn it up or down depending on how they want to feel. Emphasis on the word feel. You are thinking about the customer's cooling equipment. That's your business. But unless it's broken, they're not. They're thinking about family outings, possibly planning a vacation, dealing with the coronavirus, and anything else except their equipment. Unless, of course, it's not working. So please remember, it's their summer, not yours. It's their priorities, not yours. Approach this summer season and every season with that in mind, and your connections and engagements with your customers will be much more meaningful. So, since they're not thinking about the possibility of a breakdown and the need for emergency service, perhaps you can educate your customers and potential customers on the need to have their system checked and reduce the number of emergency calls. But exactly how do you do that? Whether you use social media or traditional media, how do you craft the message in a way that makes them seriously consider what you're saying? I said that they're not thinking about their cooling system. That's true, they're not. So what can you do and what can you say that will get them thinking about it? Remember, they're thinking about a lot of other stuff, so anything you do or say to get their attention is an intrusion and a disruption. I used to own a national advertising agency. One of our rules of engagement was to always approach our ad campaigns as intrusions. The consumer didn't open up the newspaper to read our ads and they didn't turn on the radio to listen to our spots. They didn't turn on the television to watch our commercials. We knew this, so we approached our messaging with that in mind. We were always mindful of the fact that these ads had to be meaningful, relevant, and entertaining. If they were anything less, the consumer would tune it out or turn it off. The same holds true with you and your customers. Even though you know they should get a clean and check, they didn't ask for it. They didn't ask for your opinions, ideas, and offers to help. Knowing this, how can you position yourself so that the intrusion is not viewed as such? Rather, it's viewed and received as welcome input from a caring neighbor and friend. How can you position yourself and your message so that you are part of their summertime and not an unwelcome disruption? Let's talk about crafting your message. I've been asked countless times after my live presentations, how do you get so comfortable in front of an audience? And I've been told countless times, man, I can tell you really love what you do. You're so passionate. You know what? It's true. I am comfortable and I am passionate. But how and why? First, I really do love what I do and here's why. I really believe in what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I know in my heart that what I have to say is so important and so relevant to the future success of my audiences that I can't hold back the passion. When I have a speaking engagement and I learn that for whatever reason a number of attendees didn't show up, I get upset. Not because I crave a full room. I get upset because I know they're missing something that could change their lives. So here's my question to you.
Do you absolutely love what you do? Do you believe in what you're doing with all your heart? Are you convinced without a shadow of a doubt that homeowners need what you have to offer? I hope the answer is yes to all of those questions. Assuming the answer is yes, let me take it a step further. As I've said, when I'm in front of an audience, whether it's a couple hundred or several thousand attendees, I'm very comfortable. And when I'm presenting my message, I'm very passionate. But how and why? Answer, I think about my kids. In everything I do, whether I'm speaking, training, or writing, I think about my kids. Here's what I mean. When you're raising your children, you have a natural instinct and a very strong desire to keep them safe. You do everything in your power to teach them the right and wrong ways of doing things. You hope and pray that they stay on the path to success and happiness. So when you speak to them, it's with sincerity, passion, love, and concern. When you speak, your deep love and concern for them is reflected in what you say and how you say it. If you're going out in this weather, put on a coat. If he treats you like that again, you need to move on. Oh, I'm so sorry you don't feel well. Let me get something to help you feel better. Honey, he's really sick. I'm calling the doctor. Don't treat that boy like that. You're being a bully and you're hurting him. You can go out with your friends after you've done your homework. I'm so proud of you. Let's take a look at colleges and figure out the best fit for you. And so it goes. When you communicate with your children, it's always with the intention of improving their situation and their lives. And because that is your intention, your messaging reflects that. That's how you must craft your message to your customers. If you know in your heart of hearts that the homeowner needs to understand the importance of keeping their system working properly, tell them. But not in technical contractor terms. Think about your kids. If you know in your heart of hearts that the homeowner needs you and your expertise, tell them. But not in your contractor language. Think about your kids. With all of that said, let's talk about the customer visit. By the way, notice I didn't say call? Think of it as a visit. Why? If you think of this as a visit and not a call, you'll arrive ready for an honest, friendly, and positive interaction. If you think of it as a call, you'll inevitably be approaching the customer and the situation with a sale in mind. That means you'll go in with your contractor mindset using your contractor jargon and your contractor persona. Let's put this into perspective. When you say, hey, let's pay mom a visit, or let's pay Bob and Carol a visit, or my brother and his family are coming for a visit, you get a certain feeling. You approach the upcoming event as something that you and your mom, friends, and family will enjoy. You look forward to it, and so do they. Visiting a customer is no different. Look, I'm not naive enough to think that a homeowner would actually look forward to someone coming out discovering they need repairs or a new system and spending a bunch of money to get it taken care of. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how your approach and mindset will alter your conversation and your engagement. It will diffuse their anxiety and allay their fears if your immediate remarks, body language, and facial expressions are similar to a friend or relative stopping over. Okay, let's pause. I'm also not saying to be unprofessional and unprepared. Not at all. Be the consummate professional. Just don't be the typical salesperson or technician. Does that make sense? Be prepared. Be the best in the business. But be their friend. So why are you making this visit? Well, we could probably assume with great confidence that you're on a no-cooling emergency call. It got hot, they turned on their air conditioning, and it blows hot air. 
Put yourself in their shoes. You're hot, angry, nervous about the cost, anxious and impatient. If you already know this, you'll be prepared to diffuse all of these negative emotions immediately. Let's talk about the word visit again. Let's say you're going to a friend's house and you know he or she wants to talk with you about a situation that is really bothering them. In fact, it's really getting them down. What is your first impulse? You sincerely want to help. You want to be there for them. You want to console, comfort, and offer solutions. It's literally no different with a customer visit. They have a problem, they need a friend, and they need real honest answers and solutions. Put yourself in their shoes and feel their pain. Then go in and let them know you understand their frustration and situation and you are there to help. Businessman, author, and syndicated columnist Harvey McKay wrote in his book, Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive, that the most important word in business is Rolodex. Now for the younger folks out there, that word may be foreign to you. For us older folks, we remember it well. A Rolodex was a device used to organize your contacts. It's much like your contacts on your phone or on your computer, except it was a manual device. So translate Rolodex to whatever you currently use to store and manage your contacts. Here's why Harvey McKay said Rolodex is the most important word in business. He said it's not because you can store contacts, but because you can store information about your contacts. Personal information about important dates such as anniversaries, a child's favorite band or sports team, the man or woman of the house's favorite hobby. Once you know this information, it's pure gold because it gives you endless opportunities to stay in touch with your customers. Let me take Harvey McKay's Rolodex a step further. The three P's, peruse, process, and provide is especially valuable to you because unlike most retail situations, you're in the customer's home. You get to see how they live, what their family is like, what kind of pets they have, and so much more. Let's start with peruse and process. While you are in the home doing your inspection, take notice of pictures hanging on the walls and sitting on the shelves. If you see pictures of the kids wearing sports uniforms, make a mental note. If you see a picture of the husband fishing, make a mental note. If the house has beautiful plants in every room, make a mental note. You get the idea. When you're finished with your inspection, bring up one of the pictures. Ma'am, I see your husband likes to fish. She'll open up about that. Once you have a little bit of information, write it down as soon as you get into your truck. My goodness, the plants in your house are beautiful. Who has the green thumb? Once you learn who loves plants, write it down as soon as you get in your truck. Start building your knowledge base of customer interests. Next, provide. You now have valuable personal information regarding the interests of your customers. What are you going to do with it? Let's say you have to return to the house the next day to drop off a quote. If you've learned that the lady of the house has the green thumb, bring a small plant with you. As you're delivering the quote, deliver the plant as well. Ma'am, I just want you to know that I was so impressed by the beautiful plants and flowers throughout your home. You have a gift. I want you to have this. Even if you don't hire us, Please take this plant and add it to the beautiful plants you have now. I'd be honored if you did so. If you discover the husband loves to fish, either drop off a fly or a lure or send it in the mail with a note. If the daughter loves a certain band, be sure to get notified if that band is ever in your area and get tickets for her. This is not bribery. This is a way to let them know you appreciate them on a personal level. 
It's also a way to stay in touch when they don't need you or don't expect to hear from you once they become a regular customer. I covered this topic at length in my last video titled, Turn Your Customers Into Your Evangelists and Your Sales Machine. So I'm not going to go into detail here on how to get testimonials and how to use happy customers as part of your marketing efforts. And I'm not ending this video with something I already covered because I'm lazy or I ran out of material. I'm ending it on this topic because it's one of the most important things you can do to continue building your business. If you haven't seen my latest video, please go back and watch it. I cover the importance of testimonials and I give several great tips on how to get them and how to use them. So the information is there. The reason I'm ending this video on this topic of testimonials is because you should end every single customer visit by asking for one. I cannot emphasize enough how important customer testimonials are to the continued success of your business. If you're trying to convince homeowners they need you, your products and services, let other happy customers help you spread the word. Instead of taking your word for it that your product or service is going to impact their lives positively, let real customers hear from other real customers why the decision they're about to make is a good one. According to one study, the regular use of customer testimonials can help you generate roughly 62% more revenue, not only from every customer, but from every time those customers buy from you. 92% of people said that they read testimonials when considering a purchase. 88% of consumers said that they trusted these reviews just as much as personal recommendations, according to the same study. To top it off, 72% of those who responded to the survey in question said that positive reviews and testimonials help them trust a business significantly more. Look, there's absolutely no doubt that customer testimonials work. There is no doubt that turning a typical customer into an evangelist and into your sales and marketing machine significantly increases business. And there is no question that by not taking the opportunity to ask for testimonials, it is preventing you from growing and succeeding. There's no better time to get these invaluable testimonials than while you're there and they are feeling the love. So please, follow all of the steps in this video for improved customer service and improve your chances of landing more business, but make number seven part of your daily mission statement and make sure every technician and salesperson understands it. I will not leave the home of a happy customer without asking for a testimonial. That's it. Seven basic steps to help you this summer and all year long. I hope you enjoyed this video and I really hope you found the tips and processes valuable. I look forward to our next video together. And until then, I'm Scott Deming. Thanks for watching. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
Are you rehashing your leads this summer? If you're not, you're gonna find out how to do that on today's show. Now, before we get started today, I want to share a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't want to miss it in Las Vegas, Nevada, coming up very soon. Epic is epic. There's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up. You'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. We'll take something new back. Help and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers. That was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. As I mentioned, Epic's going to take place in Las Vegas this year on October 28th and 29th. You can get signed up at epic2021event.com, epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an exciting event, tons of great content, tons of great speakers. So get signed up today because tickets, my friends, are limited. Now, on today's show, we're going to continue kind of our annual Seizing the Summer content. And today, we're going to talk about rehashing your leads. You know, it's very important to follow up on our leads, make sure that we're not losing any leads down through the cracks, right? We don't lose track of them and, and lose those leads. We got to make sure that we're following up and we're doing the rehash on our summertime leads, right? So let's take a quick look at some content that I created for rehashing your leads during the busy summer season. Hey, everybody, well along here. Welcome once again to our special Seizing the Summer series. Special contractor training just for you. This is the second week of our 16-week program, and hopefully last week you got to see Gary Alex. He did a, an entire training on marketing and, and why it's important to be thinking about your marketing during the summertime. Of course, we think it's all so busy. Maybe we don't need to do marketing. Well, if you haven't watched Gary's program, uh, you need to do that. Today, in the second series of this 16-week series, I'm going to be talking about one of the the least understood and the most often overlooked parts of running a successful contracting business. You know, over the last 20 years that I've been in this residential heating and air conditioning game, I've learned an awful lot. And, you know, I built my first company from zero to $20 million in five years. And I spent the last 2 million miles in 12 years 
working with some of the best contractors in the country. It's one of the beautiful parts about my job, and to be honest with you, I feel like I learn more from my clients than I teach them, right? I try to teach them how to sell, how to have the right mindset, how to run their companies, but I've learned so much from these really successful operators. And, uh, you know, the last couple of years, I've really been kind of on a mission to find out what are the real secret sauces of these companies. When you, when you think about one of my favorite books, Think and Grow Rich, you know, 100 and uh, something years ago, right? Napoleon Hill set out to study what the most successful people do in the early 1900s. And in 1937, he wrote Think and Grow Rich, which outlined the 17 characteristics of the most successful people. Well, over the last few years, I've kind of been on uh, my own little journey, my own little Napoleon Hill uh, journey, about trying to find out what's making these special companies so special. And when I talk about special, I'm not talking about big. I'm talking about profitable. What makes the profitable companies profitable? There's a lot of things that you probably have in common with these companies, but I will tell you, over oh, the last couple of million miles in the last 12 or 14 years, there's a couple of things I've picked up on that really separate the greatest companies. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about one of those characteristics. And that characteristic, my friends, is simply an uncontrollable obsession, uh, a manic focus on follow-up on lost sales leads. Here's what I mean by that. You're probably thinking, oh, we follow up on our lost sales leads. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about following up once or twice with a few of your best opportunities. I'm talking about an obsessive follow-up on every sales lead. In other words, the great companies pay every bit as much attention to their lost leads as they do to their sold leads. Right? Everybody gets excited about you know, the ones they sell, but what about the 50 or 60% of the ones you're not selling? And here's the worst part. If you take the average comfort consultant, they go out on 400 calls per year, and they sell, let's say, 40%. That's 160 deals they sold. Well, what about the 240 of the ones they didn't sell? The reality is of those 240 that they didn't sell, 180, maybe 200 of those companies bought. They just bought from somebody else. The great companies are getting their fair share of those 240 lost leads, right? Now, the competition is going to get some, but there's an entire new business, a business probably as big as your existing business, in the lost leads. And the great companies have found a way, found a program, which we're going to talk about today, to really learn how to, uh, to get those deals, to follow up in an obsessive manner. And, and what I want to do is to kind of illustrate part of the problem. This is from a statistic that I read from some, some research lately. I just want to share this with you. I want you to think about this for a moment. 40, and this is from Service Titan. They did a bunch of research, and here's what the numbers they found. 48% of salespeople never follow up with the prospect. Think about that. Half of salespeople are not following up even once. They do the initial presentation, and that's it. If they get it, they get it, but if they don't, they don't. 48% of salespeople don't follow up at all. That's pretty scary. Check this out. 25% of salespeople make a second contact, right? So a quarter of the people are getting a second contact. Only 12% of salespeople make three follow-up contacts. Only 10% make more than three. And check this out. 2% of sales, only 2%, are made on the first contact. Now think about that. 52% of salespeople are, not, are, are doing only one call, the presentation. And only 2% of sales are made in the first contact. 3% of sales are made on the second contact, 5% on the third contact, 10% on the fourth contact. Check this out. 80% of sales are made on the fifth to twelfth contact. That should give you some indication how important follow-up is. you got to understand the times have changed. 
And what worked for you and for me 10 and 15 and 20 years ago isn't going to work today. What used to work was, it was a one-call closed business. I built my career, I built my company on a one-call closed philosophy. I've been teaching it for years. But guess what? The times, they are changing, and we got to change with it, right? Because if you think change is hard, you need to try extinction. <laughs> because in many cases, that's the result of not changing. Here's the reality of the last 10 years. Your customers are more educated than ever. They are more sophisticated than ever. And as a result, they are far less likely to fall into a one-call closed situation, right? There's a, a huge emphasis on your follow-up. There has to be because your customers, your homeowners are changing. The great companies have figured this out. They have entire departments that are, that are devoted to the rehash process. That's what we call it. You call it follow-up, call it rehash, whatever you want. The bottom line is departments, personnel, devoted to working the lost leads. Again, if you go back to one comfort consultant, he runs 400 calls and he sells 40% of those. What about the 260 other ones? The great companies have personnel dedicated, rehash lead coordinators, dedicated to working those 260 leads. And I promise you, as you're going to see, there's a ton of business in those leads, right, in those lost leads. So what I want to do now is to take a look at the real potential revenue here, because I want you to understand the scope of the problem if you get really good at this rehash process. If you get yourself and your, and your sales team really good at the follow-up process, I want you to look at some of the potential. I want to turn here to the computer real quick and show you a couple of things. What I'm going to show you here is a spreadsheet that really illustrates the opportunity. You know, in economics, we, we call it opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is opportunity lost. I want you to take your average sales professional, and we're going to say he or she is running eight new leads a week. That's 400 in a year, actually 413 with 52 weeks, right? So it goes out in 413 leads in the course of a year. The average comfort advisor is closing 40% of those, which is great. That's 165 new deals. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at. You think about an average ticket of eight or $10,000, that could be $1.6 million, right? Nothing to sneeze at. But here's the problem. There's 60% of those leads, which equals 248 opportunities that were lost. Of those 248 opportunities, I assure you, about 200 of those are buying. They're just buying from somebody else. Now, what if, just what if, we had a rehash department, a rehash process that we could use to simply capture 20% of the 248 lost deals? That would be 49 and a half, we'll say 50 new deals a year at $8,000 average ticket. That's $396,000 in rehash follow-up revenue. That is one comfort advisor. What if you have two comfort advisors, right? What if you have four, right? The numbers are staggering. And again, the great companies understand the real opportunity in these rehash leads, these rehash opportunities. But you have to start making sure that it becomes a priority in your company. Here's the crazy thing you have to think about with these rehash leads, by the way. You figure on this situation here where the comfort advisor lost 260 of those leads, those leads cost you somewhere between $300 and $500 a piece. So we'll say on average $400 times 250 leads, that's $100,000 in leads that you bought. That's $100,000 of marketing expense to generate those leads. So my point is you've already purchased the leads. You've already spent the hundred grand. You might as well go ahead and rework those leads and make sure that you're getting every possible deal. In this situation, you know, several hundred thousand dollars, again, just with one comfort advisor, we're talking about almost $400,000 in lost revenue. That's serious, serious money. So the objective then is now, the question is now, 
how do I recapture those leads? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to change the way that you measure sales productivity. This is going to come as a shock to a lot of people who have been doing it the way I've been doing it for 20 years. You got to change the way that you measure sales productivity. Here's what I mean. And I'm going to show you a spreadsheet here in just a moment. And by the way, we'll make this spreadsheet available so you can get access to it if you want to use it. Over the course of time, we know some very simple truisms. What gets measured gets done. We have to track sales performance. And one of the challenges, if you've been managing salespeople anytime at all, salespeople are driven by the numbers, and rightly so. But here's what happens. You get a salesperson, and they go out and they run a call, and they don't close it. They come back to the office the next morning, and you want to close that call out and say it's lost. And they say, well, no, no, it's not lost. I'm going to call the guy back next week. And next thing you know, you got kind of this battle going back and forth about when do we call a lost lead a lost lead? When do we close out the lead? I've had this conversation with contractors for 20 years. When do we close out this lost lead? <laughs> when, when do we say, you know, it's, it's, it's dust in the wind? Well, what I've done is develop a new way to do sales tracking that kind of takes care of this problem. I want to go back to the computer here. I'm going to show you this spreadsheet, which is a, a very simple way, but a very new way of measuring your sales performance, which does a couple of things. Number one, it's going to show you how much time you spend on, on follow-up and rehash. And number two, it ends the arguments about when a lead should be closed out once and for all. There's no more battle between you and the sales team. Let's take a quick look at the spreadsheet. Now, this is the sales lead tracking sheet that I use in my company. And what it does, the first thing I want you to see is it separates your first call sold from your rehash sold. Why is this important? Well, it's a simple question. Did it close on the first call or not? And the answer is either yes or no. If the sales professional is still working the lead, that's fine. It still was not a first call close. So let's say in this situation, I've got a sales advisor who goes out on eight calls. And let's say he or she closes three of those on the first call, right? That's 37%. So that means he or she lost five. But let's say of those five, the next week he or she goes back and gets two of those, right? That means we get 25% on the rehash for a total of 62%. So we ended up getting five of the eight for a total conversion of 62. And let's say the total of those five deals equals you know, $45,000. We put the total in there, the total revenue, and that tells my average sale and also my average revenue per lead. The reason this is so useful, you can look at this and you start to get a sense, okay, my guys are getting more and more deals on their rehash. Because what if they get three up here and they get zero here, right? Of course, that number would be less too. Let's say it's 30,000. Then what that tells you, you can look at this and say, guys, you're doing a lousy job on the follow-up and it's affecting your revenue per lead. You've got to go out there and you've got to follow up and at least get, you know, get one of those. That would be 12%. But look what that does to the total close rate because that combines the sold first call and the sold rehash. So this solves a problem that we've had managing salespeople in our industry uh, for as long as the industry's been around. The reality is now when a salesperson finishes a lead, it is either a sold on the first call or it's not. It's not that they're not going to sell it later, and it's certainly not that they're not going to get credit if they sell it later. It just means it didn't sell on the first call. If they sell it later, it drops in your rehash category. The total of those two things is the total conversion rate for the month. It'll work itself out because sometimes you might have the, the rehash sale coming the next month. But over time, it works itself out. You've always got stuff you know, running into other months. But over time, it gives you the trends. And what this does, it allows you to see what, how good are we at following up. If you've got some people that are closing you know, 30 or 40% on the, on the first call, 
and then closing 25% on rehash, you know they're working their, their, their follow-ups, right? They're working those follow-ups. They're one of those people that's following up and following and following up. Remember, 80% of people are buying after the fifth contact. Now, I will tell you, those contacts include marketing and lead generation, those types of things. In other words, if a homeowner responds to your ad, that could be the first contact. They call in to the lead coordinator, set the lead, that's the second contact. Then your sales professional goes out, that's the third contact. And then maybe the fourth and fifth are follow-ups. The bottom line is you can count the contacts, you know, a lot of different ways. But there's got to be some level of ongoing follow-up to make this thing effective. When measuring your sales performance this way, you're going to know exactly what's going on. You're going to know if they're following up or not. So once you establish, okay, they're not following up, then you got to make a decision. Do I train my guys to do the follow-up themselves, or do I do what the great companies do, and I kind of take those leads, and I give them to my rehash department? Now, there's a lot of controversy around this because salespeople don't want to lose leads. But if you make it fair for everybody, then they usually don't mind. In other words, let's say that their average commission is normally about 8%. And you tell them, hey, your rehash leads are coming in. Maybe they get to keep a lead for three days, 72 hours a week, whatever you decide. But at some point, they got to become you know, property of the rehash department. After all, they are the company's leads. They're not the sales professional's leads. The company owns these leads. And so we've got to make sure that we're maximizing the opportunity. Listen, I've had salespeople say, hey, if I'm happy with a 35% close rate and I'm happy with the money I'm making, why should you care? Well, I care because I'm buying the leads and I have an expectation we're going to convert half of those, right? So they're my leads to make sure that we, that we maximize. So at some point, after the initial call, give them three days, a week, whatever you want to do. I wouldn't go past a week. And by the way, for it to be qualified, that's not going to rehash as a lost sale right away, they got to have a follow-up date. This, I'm going to call them next week, that doesn't fly, right? They got to have a date set for a follow-up. At some point, that's got to come back to your rehash department. The rehash department, it's a very simple process. All you have to do is measure it to make sure it's happening. Your rehashers are simply calling these people back, and typically, they're going to have to offer some additional incentive, a free duct cleaning, a free extended uh, warranty, a free something, because they got to have some additional revenue or additional incentive to get the homeowners to make that decision. The key is you've got to be fair with the commission. So maybe the rehash department gets 3% of the sale, and if it's an 8% commission, let's say, and the salesperson gets 5%, or maybe it's a 50-50 split. The bottom line is you still want your salespeople getting paid, because if they're not getting paid, there's going to be a lot of resentment. Right? But if they are getting paid and the rehash department has a high level of success, if I'm a sales guy, I want them working my leads. Now, if they can't close them, I don't want them doing it. But if they can close my deals, and so what if I'm getting less commission? They're probably following up three times better than I am because that's all they do is follow up, follow up, follow up. They're going to sell a bunch more deals. I'm going to be making half that commission while I'm out selling more of my first call closer. So you got to make sure the system is fair for everybody. But it starts with measurement. you got to measure what's going on. What gets measured gets done, right? If there, there's, there can be no place to hide, we have to put these numbers. By the way, in my company, I've got television screens. You should too. These numbers have to be up there for everyone to see. So now the rehash department gets it at some point, and their job is very simple. they got to call this thing over and over and over. How many times do they call? I get this question all the time. How many times should we follow up? You should follow up as many times as it takes to get a final decision, yes or no. That's when you stop following up, right? And you can follow up through mail, uh, email. You can follow up through a phone call. You can follow up through a text message. You can follow up on their social media account. I don't care how you follow up.
But you've got to follow up and say, hey, Mr. Homeowner, have you made a decision yet? We have some additional incentives. We've got some new information that we can share with you. You follow up as many times as it takes until the homeowner says, I'm not interested, don't call me, or, or hey, maybe we should chat again, right? So you've got to make sure and be persistent. You've got to be persistent. I will tell you that when I work with salespeople uh, as a consumer, I appreciate the follow-up because I am very often uh, super, super busy. And people will follow. I just had a guy, I just bought six new trucks for HVAC company. And I'm going to tell you something. This guy hounded me and hounded me. I sent my general manager over to look at the trucks, pick out the trucks. I take care of the financing. So the guy sent me the, the finance paperwork. I was in the middle of having some surgery for a couple of weeks, so I didn't get to a few days, but the guy was on it. Did you get the paperwork? Did you get the paperwork? Right? After the third or fourth time, I'm like, yeah, I'd send it again. I probably just lost my email. He sends it again. So the next day, he calls me. Finally, I'm like, okay, let me fill the thing out. This went on for a couple of weeks. And when I finally went in uh, or a couple of days ago to actually sign the paperwork, the sales guy says, hey, I apologize that I was, like, you know, calling you so much. I said, are you kidding me? I appreciate you calling me so much. Right? If I didn't want to buy, I could have said, stop calling me. I'm not buying. But as long as I'm out doing a million other things, I appreciate the follow-up. So you've you got to understand that this, the, 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 the number of times that you follow up is enough times until they give you a final decision, until they say yes, no, or stop calling me or say something. But until then, they haven't been bothered that much. It's an email, it's a phone call, it's a voicemail, it's a text message, whatever. When people get tired of hearing from you, they'll say, hey, I'm not buying, we, may, we went a different direction. I just had the same thing happen. While we was looking for these, these six new trucks, we had talked to a leasing company. And the guy from the leasing company was pounding me, pounding me, pounding me. I decided it was a better deal to go through Ford Motor Credit. But the guy in the leasing company kept pounding me, kept pounding me. And then one day, I'm like, hey, I need to talk to this guy. And so I called him back, hey, I went a different, I went a different direction. Was he disappointed? Sure. But when I got tired of, of dealing with him, I called him back. I didn't get mad at the guy. So most people will follow up, the, the, the appreciate the follow-up. The key is to not do it in an aggressive, annoying tone. Say, hey, we just called to see if you had some, uh, any of the questions. Or, hey, call to see if you made a decision. Hey, I got some information for you. Share some information with them. Part of your rehash process should be sharing industry information. Right? So, for example, let's say the lead comes back into rehash. That first call from your rehash department should sound something like this. Hey, Mr. Homeowner, this is Joe over here at ABC Heating. And I know that we had Sammy out there a couple of nights ago. And uh, just wanted to call, see if you had any of the questions, anything like that. Homeowner says, oh, no, no, we're just still thinking about it. No, I understand it's a huge decision. Hey, I've got some information here from the U.S. Department of Energy on some things you should be considering when choosing your contractor. Would you mind if I send that to you? Oh, no, that'd be great. Boom, send them a video. Send them a resource. Send them some value. Send some education. Stay in touch. You've got to remember, your competition, they're doing what most knuckleheads do. They're running the call. They never follow up. They're sitting back at their office hoping they get a phone call. Meanwhile, you're having this ongoing conversation with your homeowners. Send some information. I've shot a ton of videos for my guys that are, you know, why a nitrogen purge is so important. You know, how to choose the right contractor. Should you repair or replace? These are all resources we send to our homeowners on the follow-up process to stay in touch with them. Because at some point, they're going to say, you know what? We should go ahead and buy. Who are they most likely going to go with? The one person who's been following up with them. We offer discounts. On our second or third phone call, we'll say, hey, by the way, we can offer you a $250 discount if you go ahead and get that installed this week, right? After a couple of weeks, we'll say, hey, we'll go to $500. I just talked to my boss. My boss said we can offer you $500 off. Listen, these are $10,000, dollars $15,000 systems. I've got enough margin to offer some incentive. The bottom line is you've got to stay on top of your customers. 
Send them value, value, value. It's kind of like in the digital marketing space, right? You give value, give value, give value, then you ask again for the order. More value, more value, more value, ask again for the order. Same thing on your follow-up and your rehash process. Give them some free content. Give them some free education. Give them some free value. Here's how a proper installation should be done. Here's what the Department of Energy says uh, about uh, you know, replacing your old system. Here's what Department of Energy says about choosing the right contractor. Here's what Department of Energy says about proper sizing. Keep sending this information to them, and then every third or fourth time, say, oh, by the way, you know, we're offering a discount if you want to go ahead and get it done this week. You've got to stay on top of these people. Listen, out of 400 leads a year, there's 240 that aren't buying from you. You've got to work those 204 like a dog works a bone. That's what the great companies do. They don't follow up once. They follow up four, five, six, eight, ten times, right? How many times? Until they get a decision. What's wrong with that? You're not going to be pestering people. You're offering additional value. You're offering additional information, education. You're not just saying, will you buy, will you buy, will you buy? No, you give value, 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 then you ask. More value, more value, more value. Then you ask again. This is the whole concept of follow-up and rehashing your leads. It's critically important. And if you think back to the numbers we looked at earlier, the opportunity cost, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars in every comfort consultant's lost leads. If you got three or four, it might be a million dollars or more. So we got to start taking this part of the process seriously. Our job is to work those leads like a dog works a bone. Listen, your leads are like your children, right? You should take care of them like you take care of your children. You need to know where they are, who they're hanging out with, who's talking to them, what are they saying, right? You got to take these leads seriously. This is your pocketbook. And when you think about the fact on um, 240 lost leads, that's 100 grand in marketing expense. You might as well spend some money trying to make sure that you work those leads and pull as many deals out of it as you possibly can. This is the essence of rehashing and following up on your existing leads, and you got to make sure and work those leads like a dog works a bone. Now, folks, some of you might be thinking, hey, it's summertime. I got more business than I can handle. I don't need to worry about this. Well, let me tell you something. It's the summertime where you need to worry about this the most because that's the most opportunity to lose opportunity, right? If you lose 20% of your opportunities and you're running three times as many leads right now, you know, you're, you're losing three times the opportunities. So what happens in the summertime, which is why we made this part of the, of the summertime series, is that you get so busy, what do you think takes a beating? What do you think takes second seat, right? It's the follow-up because your sales guys are probably too busy to do much follow-up because they're probably running leads from early in the morning to late at night. So you got to have your rehash people inside. you got to make sure that you're following up on these leads, especially now. Why is it important? Because even if they don't buy right now in the summertime, when you go into September and that cloak of dark cloud comes back in our life after summer in the air conditioning business, listen, you can go back and rework all those leads. There'll be a, some of those that never bought all summer, right? Now you've got a list to go back September 1. You start hitting them again. So you've got to be following up and building a relationship in the summertime with your rehash department so that you have access and a relationship to those people next fall, next September. So you've got to follow up now more than ever. Now listen, I want to talk to you about a little way to leverage technology to help with this process because we've been talking about everything manually. Well, we have an app that actually automates the entire follow-up process. Basically what happens, you talk to a homeowner, and let's say they don't buy, you simply tap your app, you drop that customer in that app and you tap a campaign and over the next 14 days, they're going to get about seven or eight pieces of uh, value from you, vi videos that I've shot, 
about choosing a proper installer or a company contractor, how to do a proper installation. So I've basically automated the entire process through this app. Uh, when I talk about a seven or eight point follow-up, all those follow-ups are built into the app. You essentially drop them in there and they're going to get a series of emails and videos and additional value from Department of Energy. Every third or fourth email is, hey, I can offer you 250 bucks off or uh, you can choose from different campaigns. You can offer a free extended service warranty or maintenance agreement, whatever you want. You'll see in the app. I don't have time to get in the app right now, but what I want to do is to let you know as an EGI member, you can get a 60-day free trial to rehashleads.com. That's the app that I've built. I want to share a couple testimonials with you, and I think that really tells the story. And then I'm going to show you how you can sign up for a free 60-day trial. But you do have to be an EGI member to get this free trial. Let's check out this first one with Adam from Dayton, Ohio. Two weeks with the Rehash Leads app, and we've gotten 35 responses and closed 24 of those. What he means by that, they dropped 35 of their lost leads in the app and got 24 new system sales out of those 35. This took our closing rate from 47 to 58% for the month. We historically closed about 47%, so that's an 11% increase. That equates to 2.9 million in additional revenue for our company in 2020. Thanks for helping me follow up with my customers and get these deals. Why didn't you push me to sign up sooner? Uh, here's another one. Oh my God, I dropped 25 leads into the Rehash app. I got nine new deals. Craziest thing is, I would have gotten only three of those because I thought they were good leads I was going to follow up. But the other six I had written off as lost leads. But I put them in the campaigns, reignited the conversation, and closed another six deals worth almost $50,000 in revenue. Thank you, Weldon. Thank you, Rehash Leads. This is going to change my zip code. Uh, amen, Bobby. Uh, Weldon, I went out on two leads today and closed five deals. This guy called me, joking with me. Uh, my boss said, how'd you do that? I had to laugh. I got both my leads today, and I got three rehash deals from last week. One was a furnace only, but the other two were full-on systems. Total of three additional deals, over $20,000. It made for a big day. I just dropped them into the app and watched the app work its magic. I wish I had signed up sooner. Not only is it getting more deals, but it does all the work for me. That's the best thing about the app. Once you make your initial presentation, you can drop them in the app and move on to your next call. By the way, the best part about this, I've been talking about getting a rehash department. Guess what? Rehash lead coordinators are people. That means you've got to hire a couple of people to do this. They come in sick. They come in hungover. They don't show up at all sometimes. With the rehash leads app, you leverage the technology. You don't have to pay somebody 40 grand a year to do it, right? You leverage the technology to do the, all the follow-up. Now, listen, there's no way I can explain it all here. The main thing I wanted you to understand is that all the videos I talked about, all the value we want to send to those homeowners, it's all built into the app. It does it automatically for you. When you download the app from the app store, everything is already populated. There's no programming. There's a 30-minute training, and everybody is using the app. It's the easiest thing since sliced bread, and I guarantee you it's going to be a game changer because when you start dropping all your ex-customers, all your lost customers into the app, it initiates an automated ongoing process with your homeowners and a lot of them are going to call you back. It's kind of cool because when they start interacting with the app, every interaction, you're notified, right? Uh, it, it's funny because I've got customers that say it's more fun than Facebook because you can sit there and watch the activity, and they watch what their customers are doing, and they know exactly when to call them back. Because, listen, if you, if you think if you lose 250 deals a year, right, let's say you have 250 lost sales out of the year, maybe you don't have time to follow up all 250. The app will tell you it scores them, right, from 0 to 100, as the more they interact with the app, the more uh, video they're watching, the more stuff they're doing, their score raises. Those are your best leads. So now you know who to call back. The coolest thing about it is in the fall, 
all these people will be in your database. Now you can start dropping them in new campaigns, you know, that, hey, if you didn't buy in the summer, we're offering some discounts now or whatever. So you don't lose track of these customers. They're all right there in your database. So, folks, the bottom line is, during the summer, you got to execute on your follow-up. Remember, so few people are, are, are following up. And when you follow up five or six times, whether do it manually or through the app, the bottom line is you're going to separate yourself from the competition. Competition isn't following up. They're sitting back hoping they get a call. You are executing on a rehashed follow-up process that's going to make you a ton of money now and into the future. So, listen, folks, we appreciate you joining us here on our summer series. Uh, you got 14 more weeks of great content coming up. I've got a couple things I'm going to be doing on sales and mindset. We got Drew Cameron, we got Gary Ellix, we got Russ Orks, we got the Schellenbergers doing some training. We got all kinds of experts coming in, giving you tons of great content to get you through the summer and beyond. So with that, we're going to wrap up the content, wrap up the show. We appreciate you guys joining us. We look forward to seeing you in the future. And until then, my friends, bye-bye for now. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
You ever find yourself constantly saying to yourself, I don't have time for that? Well, find out how to fix that on today's show. Now, folks, before we get started, I want to share with you a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't want to miss it. Epic is epic. There's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up. You'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. Take something new back. Health and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers. That was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. Collaboration as we work together and trust one another. Epic's going to be in Las Vegas October 28th and 29th. You can sign up at epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. Be there or be square. Now, time management is super crucial to all of us in business. If we don't focus on what's important, we will fail our employees and our businesses. Once we know what we need to do, we can really spend the time in the right places and move ourselves and the company forward to the place where you want to be. Now, last week, Drew Cameron was here. He kicked off this two-part series on time management success. Today, he's going to wrap up this topic with part two. Take it away, Drew.
as always, awesome content there from Mr. Drew Cameron. If you like this content and you're a member, take the entire full leadership course. Log into the website, go to contractor training, click online courses, and then of course the leadership class. There are plenty more time management tips in this entire course. If you're not a member, you can sign up for a free trial at the top of this page, watch the entire course, get free access for 30 days, won't cost you a dime, it's gonna change your life, man. That's it for today, everybody. We'll see you soon. Until then, bye-bye for now.
Is your marketing ready for the peak season? Well, if it's not, find out how to get it ready on today's show. Now, before we get started, I want everybody to know that we've launched our Service Tech Module 3 online course this month. If you're a member, you can get access to this course by going to Contractor Training, Online Classes, Service Technician, then click on Module 3. This module deals with the client experience, sales and communication skills, so log in today and get started. Now, on today's show, we're going to have the legend himself, Mr. Gary Ellix, and he's going to be working on some content from our annual Seizing the Summer series, right? This is specialized content we do every year specifically for the summer. Today, Gary's going to talk about marketing in the summer season, right? It's different from what we do in the spring and in the fall. So let's join Mr. Gary Alex as he teaches us how to market during the hot summer season. Hi, welcome back to Contractor University. I'm Gary Alex, and it is nice, nice to be back in Colorado Springs, home of the video studio for EGIA. We are going to talk about how to bust out of this COVID-19 whole situation that we've all dealt with. It's been something that was completely unexpected. Uh, nobody really was prepared for it. I shouldn't say nobody, but I would say most all of us were unprepared. I know I certainly was. And our goal in this particular video segment is to take you through the fundamentals of a marketing plan to be able to look at your company and say, how do I take a marketing funnel? How do I take a blueprint and, and ask the questions uh, and put my resources, my dollars, and my message in a position where I can go ahead and put that back out into my communities and basically leverage that and grow the business, even though we've had you know, what we would consider to be a uh, a challenging environment. I think that's an overused word at the moment, but it certainly describes exactly where we've been. The last uh, 60 to 90 days, uh, we've got contractors that are in different parts, regions of the country. Uh, like our region has been very busy. Uh, we were deemed essential, uh, obviously with HVAC, plumbing, and electrical. Lots of people still have problems, so they're going to call. We're going to do the repairs. Uh, our maintenance customers and our procedures that we put in place to be able to do safe uh, maintenance checks and um, safe precautionary no-touch service calls and installations. You know, uh, there's a percentage of people that were still ready to go ahead and make that uh, sale or make that transaction happen. And you look at other areas of the company, uh, country, uh, the Northeast and some of the areas uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, areas of California, just affected in a much greater degree uh, where the government and the communities were just more shut down. So that's a very negative impact to your immediate uh, sales, but what's going to happen is there is a pent-up demand. I mean, people that were still going to be in the marketplace in, say, February, March, and April, they were still going to be in the marketplace then in May, June, or July when, you know, hopefully we begin to open up. So what I want to do is I want to take you over to the whiteboard, and I want to go through each of the areas of the marketing funnel and just reinforce some of the content that's actually on the site already, but, but put it in a different perspective. How do we actually take this... Uh, this summer that's upcoming and, uh, and really make it work for us because I think you're going to have to catch up. Uh, your sales curve obviously has taken a hit. Ours did. Uh, we were flat in, uh, well actually March was very good, believe it or not. April was flat. And then May uh, started off and we're just, we, we can't keep up right now because of the weather. 
but if I talk to some other people in the Midwest, I mean, literally uh, on our call today, Drew talked about it snowing in West Virginia in May, and, and that happens. I've been in Michigan before where it snowed in May. New York got snow. The Northeast got snow. So the reality is you might still be in your shoulder season, but you've got to have your plan of attack ready to go. So as we go through the discussions on the marketing plan, let's make sure we understand exactly how to make this a home run and so we can actually uh, recover and uh, make it a great year. I think this year is going to turn out to be our best year in all of our businesses because we're basically flat now, and I think what we're doing is we're seeing an opportunity to grow in an in a era where acquisitions and some opportunities will probably open up. So let's go to the whiteboard. All right, the G-Man is back in the whiteboard learning lab, Contractor University, so here we go. How do we break out of COVID-19, and how do we take the seize the summer mentality? How do we seize the opportunities that exist? Clearly, there are opportunities. So what I've done is I've constructed a whole bunch of stuff on this board here, but I'm going to take you through it bullet point by bullet point. Uh, you might want to pause and think about the concept as we talk through some of these and consider the idea of what you do in your business and how you want to apply the idea, or even if it's a good idea, because not every idea that we have here is a good idea for every business. We get that. However, what I want to make sure you have is you have a full set of questions. Ask them and answer them so that as you look at your business, you put together a tight marketing plan and you leverage the opportunity to seize the summer. So let's start up here with the left. We have existing customers, new customers, acquisitions, which are potential companies that might not be making it through this particular environment. Uh, probably going to be a larger percentage than we've seen since 2008, housing crisis. And also new verticals, a new vertical that you might want to enter. So if you're an HVAC company, you want to get into plumbing, or if you're in uh, plumbing and you want to get into HVAC, or maybe you want to go into solar, maybe you want to go into geothermal, there's plenty of opportunities for new verticals. So these are what I would consider to be your big buckets. Now, how do you attack the bucket? How do you attack each one of these? So with respect to your existing customers, you basically have a database. You have customers that are idle, which are non-club-related, uh, club and then you have club customers. So you have different products and different strategies that you're going to want to deploy to be able to attack whether that's an existing customer that's idle or whether that's an existing customer that's on club. So think about this. We'll start with club first. Club is relatively easy because you have the ability at this point with coming out of the COVID uh, problem to go ahead and get those scheduled. So scheduling this, what I would recommend is you have a promotion, you have an opportunity to talk to customers that are in the demographic range of the equipment of, say, 10 years or older, or five to seven years in Florida. Uh, we are just talking to a friend of mine down in West Palm Beach. You know, he's uh, saying three years is really the life cycle where a lot of his equipment sits because it's literally oceans on both sides. I mean, he's literally the island, so he's you know, basically surrounded by salt water. So yeah, so three years. So arm your technicians with a promotion. So we've done that in years past where we've used the Sweet 16 or some form of a financing program, maybe 12 months, no payments, no interest. You gotta be strong on this. You gotta come out of COVID with you know, uh, basically blazing. So have that promotion ready, train your technicians, focus on the fact that that existing customer already loves you, they have a brand relationship with you, they already know what the customer journey is and they like you, that's why they're patronizing you. This group of customers is different. They're not on your club. So I would focus on email marketing campaigns, which are going to be down here as part of the digital. 
I would focus on a texting type campaign, a call center campaign, drop precision tune-up cards. So Drew talks a lot about monster maintenance. Uh, there are companies out there that talk about a full rejuvenation of your system. Uh, we do price-based advertising. There's no right way to do this. What you need is a strategy that gets the precision tune-up and the maintenance done in your local geography. So the, the trick to this is that you think about, all right, well, how do I actually deal with that? What's the promotion? What's the call to action? So while we're in this discussion right here on the existing customer club, which means I have a scheduled repeating model, non-club, which means they call me when they need me. It's a crisis. Draw the resource when it's appropriate. I want to take you over to the marketing model and reinforce the marketing model. So we're going to solve each one of these with this marketing model. So it's over here in brown. This is the marketing funnel. So let's start off with the idea that we are in number one. We are talking about we got to have a plan. And so spending money is easy. Well, but we need to get the money back. If I spend you know, half a million dollars on marketing, I'd like to get the growth and the return on the gross profit line that proves that that half a million dollars was useful. So we're going to use campaign strategy, and we're going to track it, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to look at each part of this and say we have to define who the target audience is. Who am I targeting? Is that female, male, demographics, age of homes, lifestyles, etc.? Geographic zones. So is this a new marketplace or existing? And so this, in this particular case, it's an existing geo zone. So we're good here. The third area is, well, what product or service am I actually marketing? So in this case, it could be a tune-up. It could be monster maintenance. It could be rejuvenation. It could be a promotion for a uh, product, such as a uh, residential change-out, uh, 21-seer piece of equipment, you know, 20-year warranty, uh, 12 months, no payments, no interest, the financing. You know, we know for a fact that when you pay for cash for something, there's a pain receptor in your brain and it hurts. It actually physically challenges your mentality versus credit. When somebody uses credit or financing, that pain receptor doesn't exist. So the idea of creating a financing program is designed to be able to sell somebody something that they need based on a need, geared up with the idea that make it easy for them to say yes. So the promotion itself, we're not talking about lowering your price. We're talking about making the call to action strong enough that somebody who's on the bubble says, yeah, why not? Let's do that. So that's where the product or service comes in. This could be maintenance. This could be demand service. This could be commercial maintenance. This could be change out. We really don't care what it is. I just want you to define it based on a campaign. The fourth area is then is what is the messaging? What are we saying? That's what we got to understand. What are we saying? Listen, you, you, 12 months, no payments, no interest is a great deal. 20-year warranty. You get this great indoor air quality package. It's all great. But none of that really resonates with the consumer. So this is about what are the benefits? You know, uh, green energy savings, COVID-19, health, just the idea that we can put your environment in your home to be uh, more safe, uh, more clean, uh, more protection for your family. The selling message is about creating the benefits for the client, not necessarily the product or the feature side. And the fifth area is that how do I get that uh, customer to say yes now, the, the promotion, the call to action? Then you have to decide what the timing is. So we always go in here and with this discussion where we say, well, we have a 20-year you know, a, a piece of equipment with a 20-year warranty, and uh, we're happy to do that for you. And we've got 12 months, no payments, no interest. It's a great deal. 
but there's only so many slots. You can only do 20 of those, or maybe you can do 10, or maybe there's 30 or 50. Whatever that is, there has to be a timing and a limitation on that so that you understand that you can't just sell everybody that. You're trying to fill up your capacity, and you're trying to seize the summer opportunities. So we may have historically gone in at a lower price point. Now what we're talking about doing is coming out of an environment where we didn't have a lot of sales. Now we're going into a place where we're going to get some sales. So the promotions are important. You've got to cost those in your pricing so that you're not giving away the margin. So make sure you understand that there should be limitations. We don't want to be selling 20-year warranties or 16-year warranties or even 12-years or 10-year warranties. Honestly, they're bad for us. We do it to create the gross profit dollar transaction. That last one is the repetitive side of it. How often will it repeat itself? So when you do a promotion like this and you sell a system, you need to understand that you need to put a maintenance strategy in play with that. So this is going to come with a three-year maintenance agreement embedded in that. Uh, so that we're going to get a repeat pattern. So the repeat pattern says, I get to put my technician back out there. Obviously, we're not necessarily selling them stuff again the next year, maybe an accessory here or there. But at the end of the day, the goal is to create a repetitive pattern. It's like patronizing your uh, local grocery store or your bank or ultimately your dentist for cleanings and things along those lines. So this is the marketing funnel. So every single marketing program that you run should start with an idea of what the plan is, what's the campaign strategy that we're going to run, which in this case is idle customers are getting PTUs, call center marketing, texts, club customers are getting drip campaigns through email and so forth. So that's the campaign. Then we've got to track it. So everything has to be tracked. So that points to the center of the universe right here, which is your dashboard system. Now most of you do not have the analytics that you really need in your business to be looking at the cost per lead and the conversion processes. So I get that this is a work in progress, but at the end of the day, that's where, that's where your head needs to be. You need to be moving towards the idea that all campaigns need to be moving towards some sort of an analytic. And uh, one housing place for the analytic, which in our case is the master dashboard, gives us the full blueprint uh, well, what happened in digital, what happened in email, what happened in traditional, you know, maybe radio, cable, TV, through call tracking systems and through landing pages, et cetera. So this is imminently doable. So again, plan, create a campaign, understand that we're going to track it, use the marketing funnel. And so what you're doing is you're asking and answering questions about what am I going to do against my idle customers and what am I going to do with my club customers to generate work to come out and seize that summer opportunity. Let's move into the second phase of that discussion. The second phase is really down here. It's the traditional media. And so you ask yourself the question, um, well, why? And the answer is because it still exists. It's more fragmented. Digital is where the primary game is played in the marketing funnel today. But what we want to do is we want to link all of our traditional media, which creates brand awareness, impressions, people opportunity to know who we are. So a larger company is going to use most of these medias. A smaller company or a startup company may not use any of these medias and may only use digital because it is the most uh, productive based on the expense, meaning I can spend less dollars here and produce some results. I don't have to spend a whole bunch of money. We're in radio, TV. Generally speaking, I have to spend a fair amount of money to create enough reach and frequency. Uh, the exception to that 
would be direct mail. Direct mail can be very specific, very targeted. You don't have to overspend. So that's why Wally has said historically he used direct mail. Drew has used a lot of direct mail. And we use direct mail right here with our precision tune-ups. Postcards go out. You ever find yourself constantly saying to yourself, up. I don't have time for that? So, well, find out how to fix that on I today's show. The idea that now, time management is super crucial say, to all of us in business. If we don't focus firm, on what's important, we, we will fail that. our employees and our businesses. Framework Once we know what we need to do, we can really spend the time in the right places and move ourselves and the company forward to the place where you want to be. Now, last week, Drew Cameron was here. He kicked off this two-part series on time management success. Today, he's going to wrap up this topic with part two. Take it away, Drew. Probably going to look and see on your social media what your rankings are, what people are saying about you, are you community-oriented, et cetera, et cetera. So digital is the center of the universe now because that's where people go to get the information about the company, the brand, and really what other people are now able to say about you and, frankly, what you have said back to them in response. So, again, we've talked about this in the past. You can do your own reputation management, but I would recommend that you, as an owner, not do your reputation management. Let a professional or somebody else in your organization who isn't quite as emotionally attached and invested in the overall business as a brand. You built the business, so it's emotional. When somebody's telling you that you did something wrong or they write something that isn't really accurate, it's very easy to write something back that isn't necessarily productive for the rest of the world to see. They, they don't have the context. When they lack the context, and they lack that emotional support, that evoke set that you have, they see the review and they see the response and they think, oh, well, that's not a very nice or polite way to say things. So the consumer today, though, has the opportunity to go back to the website, read about you, read about your products, uh, the About Us page, you know, how you started the business, what your, what your clients have said about you, and ultimately what people who may be connected to you in the community are saying about you and your cause marketing. So, Let's think about that as a marketing model. So again, we're going to have a plan. So I want you to have a campaign strategy. If you're going to use radio, you should have a campaign strategy. What are we going to target? What is the product or service that we're marketing? What are we going to say? What's the story? So I'm even going to write that down here. You should really think about right here, this is your company story. We just did an unfiltered on that. Tell your story. I've been in the business for 36 years. My dad started this business you know, in 1952. So whatever the story is. If you're a startup, you don't have quite the depth in the story, but you've got to find the story. You've got to find your retail guarantees. Maybe you do a two-year, no questions asked, money back guarantee. Maybe you do a lifetime guarantee on the service repair. The story itself is all about the selling message. So you've got to understand that the campaign needs to have this process working. So every single campaign, we run through this model, and we ask ourselves the question, well, how do we know for sure that that stuff is working? And the answer is, you need to have a digital tracking system landing pages. These things need to be driven to those two areas so that the dashboard system, hopefully, that's in place in your world is capturing that. So if I spend $50,000 on radio, I can track that back to my dashboard where it says radio, and it says this is how many leads I got, calls. And because you're tracking and you are recording your calls digitally, uh, Service Titan does this, 
Uh, we do that for our clients at iMarket. We, we insist they have digital call tracking and recording because we want to know, did we convert the radio call? We put the promotion out there. They called. Did we convert it? Did we book a lead? So all of those can be brought into analytics. And so that leads to phase three, which really is the cornerstone, is the centerpiece of this whole process, which is you need to make digital become the, the best asset that you have in your marketing platform. So I see contractors' websites on a daily basis in the agency side of my world. And uh, there's a lot of contractors that have migrated over and have done this. Uh, still a small percentage, though, of the overall universe. Uh, there's still people out there that think that you know, SEO is this mystical stuff that you don't need to worry about it. Um, that's a ridiculous comment. Because the SEO is, while it's a long game, we're playing for a long period of time to get our rankings up. What we know for sure is the ability to blog and to be able to give the search engines what they want is part of the positioning strategy. It also affects this, ultimately affects what's going to happen down here on your Google Local. So Google Local is going to be paid. And so you have to participate and join in on that. We all know that. We'll go through that discussion in a bit. But it affects the quality of that. So if your website is not functioning at a high level, nor do you have good, good analytics on your dashboard, you're going to fall behind your other contractors in the marketplace. So the larger scale contractors have pretty much recognized that and already moved into that direction. And uh, so when I'm, who I'm talking to here uh, really is not you as much as I'm talking to the mid-range contractor that needs to get in the game and get a serious piece of software and technology built so that A, you have a great website with great content, content is still king, uh, links, uh, blogs, reviews are part of the linking strategy now, tying in your social media. So really, you, know, you could do uh, Facebook, you could do YouTube, you can do Twitter, uh, at this point TikTok, uh, Instagram. So there's multiple layers of social media, and there will continue to spawn new versions of this. So the social media ties back into what people are seeing and understanding about your brand. Okay? So that SEO platform is all about getting you connected to your community, and it's going to get stronger uh, in terms of a trend. It's not going away. It's actually converging and becoming more important. And so these medias over here are not going away either. So people say, well, these are fragmented. They are fragmented. There are fewer uh, people who understand how to actually use these tools. The larger companies typically will work with an agency, somebody like us or somebody that's a you know, full-scale agency. And so they're going to create the landing pages and the tracking systems. And we have the ability to understand then that they're working. But it's still, the customer is still going to your website. I heard your radio ad. I'm going to go to see and investigate who you are as a company, what your promotion is. You are going to present yourself here. So a lot of cases, the millennials uh, and the Gen Xers in particular, and now we have a new generation coming up. Um, what's going on is they're going to hear the messaging through this process here. And what they're going to do is they're not going to call you right away. They're going to go directly to your site. They're going to go investigate you on social media. They're going to look at your reviews. And they're going to make a decision about whether they're going to call you or not. So the strength in this process is supporting this. And the weakness in this process would be, oh, I heard your ad. I went there. 
but I wasn't inspired because you were a 3.2. We pretty much know the research says you have to be 4.0 or better here, or people just won't react well to that. Or they read on social media, and you're not inspiring them. It's not creative. It's not fun. It's not interesting. You're not part of the community. You don't have a cause. Uh, you know, it's dull, boring, and there's nothing there. Well, the, that group of people is coming into our demographic. So, it, you know, well, we, we may say, well, we had uh, this COVID-19 event. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to think about, well, what are we going to do to break out? And so if you're going to seize the moment, you probably need to be thinking about what you're doing inside of this world. You need to make sure that you have your review system producing as many reviews as possible. Uh, so moving into the paid search, we've got basically, you know, Google, we've got, it's called Microsoft Advertising now, they've changed the name. It used to be Bing, now it's called Microsoft Advertising. It's the same company, it's a partnership with Yahoo. Obviously you have Google, you have Google Local, which is really called Local Services by Google, the technical name is Local Services by Google. That's Google putting its cachet behind you and saying, I'll charge you less money for this than I will for this paid search, but you have to behave. You have to submit background checks. You have to be responsive. You have to meet their criteria. So you have to sign up for this, and it's kind of a pain if you haven't done it. But everybody really should do it. Whether you want to advertise, create a budget, and do it that way, that's up to you. This whole quadrant right here, okay, which includes retargeting and essentially remarketing. So you touch my page, you touch my social media, you've clicked on a link somewhere on my email marketing campaigns. It gives me access to drop that cookie in your world and I can follow you around for a period of time. What's important about that is all of this is a pay to play type service. Because of that, you really need to do this when you need the leads. So let's go back to the original conversation. If my existing customer base is big enough, I may not need that many leads. And I've got lots of customers in my agency business that say, yeah, I'm good. I mean, I, we're, we've got plenty of customers. We're farming from our existing base, and we're acquiring new businesses and feeding that machine. We don't need to do paid. And my answer is, you're right. That's a good idea. You don't want to spend money on this if you don't need to. This is an expensive place to spend money. The cost per lead here is pretty high comparatively. So if you look over here, cost per lead, you know, we're running anywhere from sort of $8 to call it, you know, $50 per lead. We've got some companies that are higher than that. We've got some companies that are lower than that. This is not a great lead generation system. It supports the idea. Start looking here, you know, you're going from $1.28, you know, up to about, call it $30. We've got some companies that are at 50 that are brand new URLs, startups. They don't have the uh, trust factor. <laughs> excuse me, authority. So, you know, it can be that high, but that's a pretty good cost per lead. If I said, I get you an installation lead for $30, you would say, yeah, sign me up for that every day. So you start coming down here and you start looking at the cost per lead down here. Well, this could be anywhere around $200. And we've seen some cases where we've spent $500. And as time goes on and you begin creating a campaign over 90 days, this declines. And so it gets better. But I mean, if you're going to spend two to $500 to create a lead here, and you can spend $50 here, or you can spend you know, eight to $50 here, why would you do that? And the answer is, well, it's, it comes down to you having a good existing customer base. 
if you're sitting in this as always awesome right content here, there for mr drew cameron if you like this content and you're a member take the entire full leadership course log into the website go to contractor training click online courses and then of course the leadership class there are plenty more time management tips in this entire course if you're not a member you can sign up for a free trial at the top of this page Watch the entire course, get free pages, access for 30 uh, days, won't cost you a dime, it's going to change your life. You know, so That's I it for today, everybody. We'll see you soon. Until then, bye-bye for now. By fishing in a pond that has a bigger geographic zone. So why wouldn't I do that? So again, we're back to your plan. How many leads do you need? Where are you going to get those leads? That brings you to a campaign strategy. Can I do this? Can I do this? Am I going to be able to do this? Will I be able to do well at this and this? Or do I need to add some of this? So what we're doing is we're just layering on. We're building you know, a building, one block at a time. So the core customer base is where you want to be first. The new customers are great, but you've got to be strong in these positions. And if you're going to spend money down here, we've got to have the analytics, the tracking. And then you go, OK, paid search is something that I'm, maybe I want to do. So again, I can amp my budget and increase that. Uh, just talked to a, a very, very uh, fine gentleman in uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, somebody that I've known for oh, 20 years or so at least. And so he, uh, he didn't have a great technology. He's going to put a new technology in. But in the meantime, he's like, I, I need to come out of this COVID-19. I need to spend some money and generate some leads. So we started looking at his geozones his budget to get the leads that he required for his plan was about $16,000 a month. But he only had about $5,000 a month to spend. So because we don't have a great existing customer base, he doesn't have a great technology, there's really only one option. I mean, you start looking at traditional or paid. Either, uh, both of those are expensive. So we're choosing paid. And he's OK with the 5000 but we had to limit his geo zones. We literally said, well, if we don't spend 16,000 and you only have five to spend per month, we're going to manage that. We don't want to have cost per leads going up, but we can't spend all that money in all those different geo zones that you wanted. You got to narrow your scope a little bit. So this is the exact conversation I want you to be thinking about is if you're going to create the campaign, how many leads do you need? Well, I only have $5,000 as a budget, fine. So narrow the zones down. We can't go to all the zones we want to. So we'll create leads for him, but it's just not going to be quite as many as he thought. So he's going to have to manage that. We, we also have to sort of count on the idea that he's going to have to do some precision tune-up marketing inside of his new customer world as well. So I would take you right over here and say, this is a direct mail conversation for him. And he's going to have to do some PTU drops to go find some new customers and hopefully turn them into existing customers. So paid search, Google, Microsoft, local services, get in that game, targeting and retargeting customers, dropping cookies on if they visited your site, we can chase them around. What we do is we send them messages, we can send them promotions, we can reinforce the idea that they visited you. They were probably interested in your company and your services or they wouldn't be coming to an HVC plumbing electrical solar type site. So that leads us then to the social media conversation over here. Uh, we need to be geared in social media. Uh, yeah, uh, again, talked to a, a very fine gentleman this morning. Great guy, uh, great personality, runs a nice company. 
point blank said, I'm, oh, I'm old. I don't do social media, but you know, my family does, my wife does, I, I get it. So, but his social media profiles, I mean, he basically had a Facebook page and that's it. So he's not doing any videos. He wasn't present on Twitter or Instagram. He's not uh, creating blogs and he's not tying his blogs through all of his various medias. So I will write a blog here. We can take that out to email. We can try to sell some things via email very delicately. We can repost those to social media. We can tie all those videos together. Not only that, it could be interesting stuff. It doesn't have to be just garbage disposals. It can be all kinds of interesting stuff. So last on this list is texting, communication, live chat bots. Live chat's part of the website, so that ought to be active. A lot of people will say, well, I don't really want that. I don't like it. You can't let your biases get in the way of your marketing decisions. You have to decide what the client wants. Again, create a plan. What's the campaign? Who is the target audience? Well, I got news for you. The millennials and the Gen Xers, they like the chat bots. They don't want to fool around a lot. They're going to go on your site. They're going to review what's going on. They'll click on the chat bot. They'll send the lead in. They do expect to be called and communicated with. They just don't want to do it now. So they have their own idea about how they want to interface with your company and your brand. If, if people didn't like the internet, Amazon wouldn't exist. Amazon's trading at like $2,450 right now, and it's booming as a business through this whole process. And you can say, well, it's because of COVID-19, but they were booming before COVID-19. They just got a shot in the arm because of that. So more people are being exposed to the digital technology than ever before. That is not going to go away. That's going to facilitate the trend further and faster. So a chatbot is nothing more than a convenience for the customer. You don't pay for it unless somebody actually dials in and uses it. Uh, me personally, I don't use it. Uh, it's not something I would rather you know, uh, click the call and talk to somebody. But I still have it on my websites. So you can't let your personal biases and personal assumptions influence your decision. So get yourself a texting and communication model in place too. Text message to existing customers uh, about scheduling, about opportunities, and even texting messages to your database about various uh, promotions, ideas, even social media. You know, check for our cause marketing. You know, we're getting ready to run a program for you know whatever the cause is. Uh, you know, saving pets. You know, adopt a pet. Uh, breast cancer awareness. Uh, military families, gold star families. There's a, a ton of places where you can place emphasis on social media and cause marketing. So text communications doesn't have to be about selling somebody something or scheduling. It can be absolutely tied to your social media. So again, what is the campaign? What is the overall strategy through the campaign? Who's the audience for the text message? Do we have target zones that we care about? What's the product or service? That could be social media cause marketing, or it could be something that we're actually going to be doing. Like, we're in your neighborhood to do a maintenance agreement. Uh, Drew talked about the monster maintenance is normally 229. It's now 169. Here are the benefits. Call us at this number. Visit www. So the selling message itself, the promotion, the timing and limit. The li time is limited. It's this week only, and we only have 40 slots available. Boom, that's a text. So being able to do that is absolutely part of your overall digital strategy. So this is a core discussion. The final element of this discussion is acquisition and new verticals. So I encourage you to go to the EGI site and spend some time on the acquisition module. It's uh, 
technically in two places. It lives uh, in the marketing section, but it also lives under the financial management section. The financial management section is really about how to value and how to create a price monetizing the database of a company that you might acquire. Uh, but the marketing funnel on this is pretty simple. We want to market to SIC code 1711. We want to attack the idea that, hey, if you want to join our team, we'd be happy to talk to you. When you bring that database in, it's very important. The success pattern of this is tied to the idea that you have a plan, you have campaigns, and you have a tracking system. If you have those things, what you do is you plug the database that you get into this model over here. So we're going to send them a nice letter. We're going to invite them to the club. We might give them some coupons. We're going to give them our website. They're going to have to go to the website to download the coupon, build some traffic to your website, some Alexa. Uh, we're going to focus the idea that uh, once we get them in, we've got the database. We bought the database, so we have access to their name, their phone numbers. We can put them in our texting model. So again, you can see that if I have the acquisition and I get the database, if somebody hands me a quality thousand names with you know, real life demographics and history, I can plug that into the marketing structure. And so I'm not worried about this. I'm not worried about this. They're not going to influence based on this. We're going to be going to this discussion. We're going to treat them as an existing customer. Even though they're basically not really, uh, they, they kind of are a new client, we're going to treat them in this model, this side of the vertical. So we're going to, we're going to PTU them. We're going to coupon them. We're going to write them a nice letter. We're going to call center them. And then we're going to organize the idea of texting, communicating. And ultimately, if we sell them a club agreement, we're going to bring in the opportunity to buy a piece of equipment. So it's a messy board. I know it. Uh, that just says I'm back. So uh, it's nice to be out of, the, uh, out of jail. So uh, I'm going to go back in the studio, and we'll wrap it up. All right, back in studio, one of the things that I've said over and over and over in this discussion is you need to have a plan. So if you don't have a core marketing plan, the first thing you should do is go to the EGI website, go under the marketing section, and get the outline that I've created for you to design a marketing plan. A lot of the content that's in this particular video will be a part of that. So I want you to understand that you need to have a campaign strategy. You can't just wing it. Well, I shouldn't say that. You absolutely can and do wing it. Let's not do it that way. Because the tracking and the analytics that come behind that, the measurements that prove the success or failure, you're going to end up with a better overall set of analytics and results, more sales, more gross profit dollars, better growth, if you control what's going on with respect to your marketing because you sat down and thought about your campaign. So recently, I've posted a full year campaign calendar for social media, a full year campaign calendar for email marketing, a full year campaign calendar for all of your other marketing. So there's really no excuse coming out of the COVID-19 to not have sat down and thought about what kind of things can we do in order to improve our campaigns. So then I brought you to the marketing model, you know, which is hey, what's the target audience? Who am I selling to demographically and psychographically? What geo zones? What kind of product and services? What's the awareness vehicle? Uh, the medium of choice? What am I going to say? What's the selling message, et cetera? All the way down through timing and repetitive call to action, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm encouraging you to follow the blueprint of create a plan, create a campaign, measure, track, 
understand it, debrief on it, and then repeat that process. And so hopefully, those of you that recognize this discussion recognize that if your digital assets are not uh, strong, that all the other marketing that you're doing is, uh, is going to be useful, but it's probably not going to be as effective as it could be when people visit your site and they visit your technology, your social media, and or they see you know, what's going on in your world with respect to your digital brand asset that's out there. If they're not inspired by your company and what your message is and uh, your brand promise, if it's just me too, you're probably not going to get as many conversions. And the name of the game is conversions. So as always, if you have questions, you send me a note through the Ask the Expert portal. Happy to help out. We've got the Contractor Connect on Facebook now, so that's pretty exciting. Love that we're in the Facebook world again. Uh, that's fantastic. Use that tool. And as always, uh, make sure that you understand that we're here to help you. We appreciate the fact that you're an EGI member. Uh, we can't do what we do without having you as a client, and we're happy to serve you. I will see you on the next summer segment. And uh, remember, seize the summer. Take care. Awesome content right there from Gary, as always. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.
One key to success is waking up with a plan. Find out more on today's show. Now, folks, before we get started, I want to share with you a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't want to miss it. Epic is epic. There's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up. You'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. Take something new back. Help and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers. That was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. Collaboration as we work together and trust one another. Epic's going to be in Las Vegas October 28th and 29th. You can sign up at epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. Be there or be square. Now, most of us contractors wake up pretty early, but do most of us have a specific plan to make the most out of our day? Well, today we've got Mr. Rob and Mr. Steve Schallenberger in the house to talk about what they refer to as becoming your best morning. If you want to make the most of your day, it all starts out with the morning routine. Now, if you like this content and you're a member, you can take Rob and Steve's full course, Performance and Productivity, by logging in, going to Contractor Training, click Online Courses, and then click Performance and Productivity. Now, if you're not a member, you can sign up for a free trial at the top of this page, watch the entire course during that 30 days, it won't cost you time. Today, we've got the one and only Mr. Schallenberger in the house to talk about what he refers to as becoming your best morning. Well, welcome to this session on the Becoming Your Best Morning Routine. Uh, first off, I'd like to just give a thanks to Bruce Madledge, Jeff Madledge, Tovia, Andy, and the whole EGIA crew for bringing these resources to you. And the real hero of this story is you uh, for being here. I just have so much admiration for you of working on becoming your best, of building your skills, of learning new ways to do things of your interest on how to maximize your potential. So welcome, let's have some fun today. Uh, we're going to talk about things that really set you up to win. And uh, there's a few character traits to keep in mind. Discipline, because all things that lead to success really require discipline leads to confidence. Uh, because when we do something over and over, we have confidence that we can do something. And confidence, when it is coupled together with imagination and a dogged out determination until you achieve what you want to achieve, is a surefire formula for success. 
And so what you're going to want to do is really work on seven things we're going to talk about today that literally create what my friend Stephen R. Covey talked about was having a public victory. In other words, doing certain things, disciplining yourself so that you experience first a, pub, a private victory that leads to the public victory. Uh, and as you go out in, into the day, so there's certain things you can do in the morning that set you up to win. And that's what we're going to talk about. Seven things that produce this private victory. Seven things that as you discipline and work on them, uh, lead to confidence. And then when coupled with this imagination and this dogged out determination is pretty amazing of where it puts you. And, and what we found is that these are things that are both physical and psychological, and they work together to improve both. And you'll see this throughout these seven steps. So let's jump right into it. Let's have some fun. They impact your emotion. They impact your mind and your, your focus. The first one is to have adequate sleep and rest. <laughs> adequate sleep and rest is vital to your success, and yet often it's overlooked, and, and we miss it. We shortchange it, right? But having good sleep literally builds what we call the parasympathetic system. You have two parts to your nervous system. The sympathetic system, which is your drive to get things done, but the parasympathetic system is what does the repairing and the healing and gives your sympathetic system energy. So typically during the day, we're using our sympathetic system. And at night when we're resting, that parasympathetic system is going to work so that you're able to wake up and feel fit and attack the day. Uh, there's so many other benefits to having adequate sleep and rest. Uh, increased immune system, reduced inflammation, uh, lower risk of heart attack, uh, increased uh, ability to perform. So athletes, we see this all the time when they have adequate rest. That's the first one. The second one is to make your bed. Very first thing when you get up. Uh, I had, oh, a few years ago, we had a family activity and um, I was paired in our room with uh, Rob, uh, Robbie, our grandson, who was about 14 or 15 years old. He had one bed, I had the other bed. And when I got up, like I'm in the habit of, of doing this, right? Of making my bed as soon as I get up. And so I made my bed and I looked at Rob's bed and, you know, it was a mess. It, you could tell someone had slept in it, covers were down. And then I shared with Robbie uh, the importance of this particular item, make your bed as soon as you get up. And because it has so many benefits, uh, you first of all, start your day off with an instant victory. Uh, you feel more organized, you feel more calm, and you just feel like you're, you're at peace, like you're ahead of the game right from the get-go. You've already experienced a quick success. So I told this to Robbie and I said, so do you know how long it takes to make your bed? And I said, let's time me. And so uh, I gave him my watch with the second hand. I jumped into his bed, pulled all the covers up inside the covers, got them nice and neat, jumped out, did the final part, 45 seconds. <laughs> so it doesn't take very long to do number two. So number one, of course, adequate sleep and rest. This one actually starts the night before. 
of saying, I've got to get my rest. That's a big deal. Number two, make your bed. Number three is drink water. Uh, this is one of the first things that you do uh, after going through the night without a sip of water, your body gets somewhat dehydrated. So having a serving of two to three glasses of water really kickstart your system and gets it going. It starts getting that digestive system going, starts uh, uh, your metabolism from going. And also it's really quite interesting because I know that you all know how much uh, water comprises your body. For example, uh, your brain is 70% water. And so when you drink water right off, it kickstarts both your body and your brain and getting set for a great day. Uh, so that's number three is drink water. Number one, adequate sleep and rest. Number two, remember what it is? That's right, make your bed. Number three, okay, drink water. Number four is really a great one. Uh, it is to reflect, pray, meditate, and have gratitude. The world is full of huge negativity, stress, conflict, uh, and all kinds of things that are really uh, having a huge impact uh, on your physiology and psychology. And so how can you insulate yourself uh, away from those type of things and build a powerful inner peace and strength so that you are set up, you have this kind of great armor to be successful against all these negative influence in the world. And the best way to do that is to reflect. Reflect on all the good things that you have. How can you improve? How did yesterday go? How can I just tweak a few things to get into a better place? Pray for strength and, and reflect upon all the things you're so grateful for. You're grateful for your health, to have safety and security and to have a great company that you work with, to have a regular paycheck, uh, to have relationships in your family that are so grateful and, the, and to implore for strength. And then of course, to just meditate and reflect. These things build a powerful inner peace. They give you a calm that gives you the capacity to be successful as the conflict comes your way and you don't have to buy into it. And if someone cuts in front of you on the highway, you don't fly off the handle and waste all kinds of emotional energy. You keep your act together. You take the high road. Why? Because you have this inner strength. And so number four is a big one. Number five is, is really great because that is exercise. This is absolutely my favorite time of day. Uh, exercise impacts you in every psychological way and physiological way because this is the most valuable asset we have. And by keeping it in shape helps us to be a, a peak performer. Now, it's very interesting because each one of us has something in our brain called a hippocampus. It's right at the base of our brain and it looks like a little seahorse. Now, why the hippocampus is so important is because it's the gateway to body health. It's the gateway to energy and longevity. And the smaller that seahorse is, it can shrink uh, the less health that we have and we're at greater risk. The larger that hippocampus is, the more healthy we are. 
And so what are the factors that affects the size of it? Here are some of the things that causes it to shrink. Stress, obesity, it can reduce the size of the hippocampus by 18 to 25%. These have big forces on it. Another one is if when you turn 50 years old, the hippocampus starts shrinking 5% a year. <laughs> and so what can you do to grow that hippocampus? Well, Dr. Fotuhi, a great neuroscientist, one of the best in the world, has discovered there's quite a few things you can do that grows that hippocampus. One of those happens to be getting adequate rest. Uh, another is regular meditation and reflection will increase it because it gives you this inner strength and peace, right? Another one is exercise. Almost universally, everybody says it will grow it. So how much exercise? Dr. Fotuhi indicated that if you will exercise one mile three times a week, it will grow your hippocampus 23%. Uh, learning new things. And so one of the reasons I love exercising is I can listen to podcasts, TED Talks. Uh, I can listen to audible books. Uh, that's why it's among the best times of day because I come back uh, pumped, right? It's a physiological thing that you can do that impacts you psychologically. In other words, as you're doing it, it releases these chemicals within your body called endorphins that literally affects your attitude. So you're at a whole nother place. All right, so there you have a few of these. Adequate sleep, right? Make your bed, drink water, reflect, pray, meditate, express gratitude. And number five is exercise. Number six, and we're getting right through these, is to maintain a positive, upbeat frame of mind, a positive attitude. Uh, these do the very same thing. So what are the things that you can do to have this upbeat frame of mind? And, and I might add, whether you're a technician, comfort specialist, a CEO, an administrator in your office, a team leader, these seven steps have the very same impact for every single one of us. It is, now just think about this. If what, what would you look like? I want you to just kind of mimic this for a second. If you were a person that is feeling depressed, what would your body language would be? <laughs> how did you do it? I would have loved to seen how you acted that out. On the other hand, if you're a person that's upbeat and positive, what do you look like? What's your body language? <laughs> Well, you can see a big difference. If you're out contacting customers, if you're interfacing with one another, if you're talking with family or friends, every single one of you knows when you're around somebody that's upbeat, it's like night and day. And it has a big impact. It's sunshine, right? It's sunshine and it is contagious. And so that's one of the things that you want to do. Uh, I might add, by the way, it's nice to have good, good, examples. And in exercise, uh, I have a great friend who is 96 that both exercises and has a great positive attitude. Her name is Dorothy. I've known Dorothy for a long time, 50 years. She is now 96 years old. She's got a bright mind. She's sharp, has a great sense of humor. Uh, Dorothy 
understands the importance of both of these things. And every single day, she has to get on the treadmill for five minutes. And if she doesn't, she runs a risk of having a blockage in her intestines. And so when I think about these two, I am so inspired by Dorothy about her exercise regimen, but also her enormous, positive, upbeat sense of humor and so fun to be around. And so I think to myself, if Dorothy Russell can do this at 96 years old, I can do it today. And I can do it every day. And you can do it every single day. Okay, that was number six. And number seven is to now, in this frame of mind, your body's alert, you're all over it, you've had a success, your bed's made, you feel rested, now pull out your planner or organizer or look at it electronically wherever you've had it and hopefully you've done pre-week planning so that you have the context of doing what matters most for the whole week. But now just think about the day. What I do is I actually pull my planner out the night before and just look at it. So I'm at peace, right? And when I get up in the day, and at this point, number seven, I've done these other six things. Now I just look at my plan for the day and get to a sense of power and peace, of inner harmony, focus, confidence, ready to go. And if you are a comfort specialist, if you're a technician, you want to look at all these and say, okay, here's my day. I've got it planned out. I've got all the supplies I need. Uh, I see myself, and you can imagine, uh, in the pilot world, they call this chair flying, closing your eyes and imagining the whole mission. Well, you can do exactly the same thing for the day. Imagine yourself going through, looking at it, having a great day, going to the customer's home and greeting that customer with a smile and explaining what you're going to do that day, how long it'll take approximately, uh, and then you do the work, high quality work. You see yourself actually producing tremendous quality. And then at the end of the job, you clean everything up perfectly, leaving things better than you found them. And you once again explain to the customer, here's what I did, here's the next process, and thank you so much for the chance to be in your home. Our company is honored to be here. And here is information if you have any problems, just give me a call or call our company. We are here to help you. Now, how does that feel? And then at the end of the day, you're careful as you're driving. And at the end of the day, you go back home and you're with your loved ones and you give them time. And then you get to sleep early enough so you can have the sleep that you need. And this is the routine. A routine is something that you can do over and over that helps you be successful. These seven things will give you not only a great private victory, not only will they build upon your discipline to give you confidence, and together with your imagination and dogged out determination, you will have stronger relationships. You'll be happier. You'll be more at peace. You'll be focused and you will be successful in your work and your profession. So it's been so great to be together with you. Uh, we have a, uh, a, a, an outline of these seven steps just for you that we'll be sure to include and make a resource available to you. 
We wish you the very best in all that you're doing. You are such a light to the world, and it's an honor to have been together today. Thanks, and this is Steve Schallenberger wishing you a great day. As always, awesome content right there. We really appreciate it. Listen, once again, if you like this content and you're a member, you can take the entire course, Performance and Productivity, by logging in, going to Contractor Training, and click on Online Courses, and then, of course, Performance and Productivity class. If you're not a member, sign up for a free trial at the top of this page, watch the entire course, you have access to the entire platform for 30 days, no charge. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week. Until then, bye-bye for now. Adequate sleep and rest is vital to your success, and yet often it's overlooked, and, and we miss it. We shortchange it, right? But having good sleep literally builds what we call the parasympathetic system. You have 
two parts to your nervous system. The sympathetic system, which is your drive to get things done, but the parasympathetic system is what does the repairing and the healing and gives your sympathetic system energy. So typically during the day, we're using our sympathetic system. And at night when we're resting, that parasympathetic system is going to work so that you're able to wake up and feel fit and attack the day. Uh, there's so many other benefits to having adequate sleep and rest. Uh, increased immune system, reduced inflammation, uh, lower risk of heart attack, uh, increased uh, ability to perform. So athletes, we see this all the time when they have adequate rest. Drink water. Uh, this is one of the first things that you do uh, after going through the night without a sip of water, your body gets somewhat dehydrated. So having a serving of two to three glasses of water really kickstart your system and gets it going. It starts getting that digestive system going, starts uh, uh, your metabolism from going. And also it's really quite interesting because I know that you all know how much uh, water comprises your body. For example, uh, your brain is 70% water. And so when you drink water right off, it kickstarts both your body and your brain and getting set for a great day. reflect, pray, meditate, and have gratitude. The world is full of huge negativity, stress, conflict, uh, and all kinds of things that are really uh, having a huge impact uh, on your physiology and psychology. And so how can you insulate yourself uh, away from those type of things and build a powerful inner peace and strength 
so that you are set up, you have this kind of great armor to be successful against all these negative influence in the world. And the best way to do that is to reflect, reflect on all the good things that you have. How can you improve? How did yesterday go? How can I just tweak a few things to get into a better place? Pray for strength and, and reflect upon all the things you're so grateful for. You know, you're grateful for your health, to have safety and security and to have a great company that you work with, to have a regular paycheck, uh, to have relationships in your family that are so grateful and, the, and to implore for strength. And then of course, to just meditate and reflect. These things build a powerful inner peace. They give you a calm that gives you the capacity to be successful as the conflict comes your way and you don't have to buy into it. And if someone cuts in front of you on the highway, you don't fly off the handle and waste all kinds of emotional energy. You keep your act together. You take the high road. Why? Because you have this inner strength. 